0: The sharp rattle of the marine drummer's stick snaps you to attention as he beats to quarters. You've been expecting this since you woke at 4am, the whole ship has been going about its duties in a mute pantomime, studiously ignoring the line of French sails on the horizon. You stash the stiff brush and bucket you've been scrubbing the deck with under a tarpaulin and climb to your feet, the third watch are already pouring out of the hatches from below with their bundled hammocks. You watch a sailor stuff his into the nets along the ship's side, With the hammocks of eight hundred other men, these will provide some scant protection from the cannonballs and splinters that will rake the exposed decks in the next few hours. Immediately you're swept in with a tide of men down the hatches. The ship is alive with noises, the unending roll of the drums, the ritual calls of the officers, the barked orders of the boatswain. but the silent majority of the crew make no more noise than the shuffle of their bare feet, as they each do exactly as they've been drilled to a hundred times before. You plunge down through two sets of hatches to the middle gun deck where you mess, and where the rest of your gun crew will be heading. You're rated ordinary seamen, so you're not with the top men, those most experienced sailors who will be up amongst the rigging during the battle. Powder boys not older than nine or ten scuttle past with shot and powder charges for the coming action. On the gun deck you stoop a little to allow for the five-foot space between floor and ceiling. You squint through the gloom and work down the length of the ship to your weapon. It is a 24-pounder, You are its gun captain. The gun's crew, who your arrival has completed, consists of eight men who have been trained for hundreds of hours to sponge, charge, load, ram and haul out the three-ton weapon. You can do it in 90 seconds. You haul on the rope that opens the gun port and you ease out the tompion, the plug in the gun's mouth that keeps it dry when not in use. You remove the iron girdle that keeps the gun's lock from coming down and firing the gun by mistake. You give the firing mechanism an experimental wiggle. The rest of your crew perform similar checks on the screws, rammers and shot that will be their sole focus for the coming engagement. Once you're sure everything is accounted for, you give the order and your men strain at the thick ropes that run through ring bolts to the ship's hull and onto the gun's carriage that will haul its blunt nose out of the firing port. This done, you're ready. You glance down the length of the deck. Almost 300 men at 30 similar guns are lined up one next to the other, six feet between them, as far as you can see. The ship lurches gently and the deck tilts as the ship picks up speed towards the enemy. The gun ropes creak under the tension. You turn your gaze back to the gunport; It affords you a slender view out of the ship's side. You can see nothing but the white flecked waves. Despite the calm view, the hairs on your arms stand on end, as if the rest of your body can sense the row of a thousand French and Spanish cannons that your ship is sailing toward. The order comes to lie down between the guns. All you can do is wait. Um so we have he, Lord, Lord Nelson. Nelson, yeah, Lord, Lord Nelson. Nelson. He was a very small man, diminutive little creature. Short ass, of a high yeah, grandpa is always going on about him. Um don't, no, you've got short man Nelson complex. What? Was he missing an arm? Also, did he get an arrow in his eye in the battle? I seem to remember him losing an eye. And he lost an eye. An anti establishment figure. Was it in the eighteen hundreds? on top of a column in Trafalgar Square. I mean, was this the Battle of Water Blue, I think? Fought the French, I think. We won, right? Big naval victory, was it? I um, mean, was it fighting Napoleon? I think it was fighting Napoleon. The main thing I know about Trafalgar is it's part of the shipping forecast, so it must be in the English Channel. The outrageous ongoing affair with Lady Hamilton. My friend's beautiful standard poodle was actually called Nelson. Also, did he have a famous horse with a funny name? Trafalgar? Welcome back, valued listeners, to episode three of the first series of Pedestals, Kiss Me Hardy. Uh, So before we get really stuck into this episode, I just want to make a quick note uh, that it's actually been a year since I recorded uh, the second episode of this series. Um, And as much as all of this is being released all at once, uh, there has been a year break in recording. Um, So quite possibly many of the things I said a year ago, I have changed my mind about or I have forgotten I said so I may well repeat myself um, but it struck me that it's best just to let you guys know that and to carry on in good conscience and, and hopefully some sense comes out of it but in any case I'm recording on a different microphone and I've lived a year more of my life so who knows we may be approaching things from a different angle. Other than that though um, I've still got the same notes and I've still got the same desire to record this so hopefully we can get back into it. One further quick note, uh, is just, this may seem obvious, but uh, this is the episode that is mainly going to be concerning the actual Battle of Trafalgar, and for that reason it is frankly full of some references to some quite nasty stuff happening, so if you're not into that, then that's totally fine. I would, and I'm not being flippant here, I would genuinely recommend just go and look at the Wikipedia article of what happened in the battle, and then uh, come back for episode four, where we'll have some more intellectualising and uh, perhaps slightly more comfortable things to talk about. Now, I wanted to to start this episode with a question which might initially come across as slightly corny or cheap, um, but I think it's worth going into. There's a quotation which I remember probably as a 13-year-old thinking was very faux-profound, and probably is actually very profound, but I, I couldn't necessarily grasp when I was a teenager. And that was Martin Luther King Jr. saying, quote, Life is not worth living until you have found something worth dying for. End quote. When, uh, that's obviously... A lot more profound coming from the mouth of Martin Luther King Jr. than it is coming from the mouth of a a 13-year-old precocious little brat. But uh, for the content that we're going to look at in this episode, I thought it was worth uh, diving into and it popped back into my head. So the question I want to ask you is, what would you be willing to risk your life for? And I want you to ask yourself that. And I don't ask that in a sort of, oh God, how profound, what a profound, I can't possibly answer that kind of a, a question because I think it's actually something we can reflect on and we can come to some fairly solid answers on. The first thing that probably springs to mind for most people is either family uh, or loved ones, more generally. Children, probably most obviously for for parents or husbands and wives, brothers, sisters, parents, uh, your friends. I think probably depending on the situation lots of us would risk our lives for those people. Analyzing uh, my own answers to that question, I'm I'm not convinced that those are the first thing that spring to mind solely because they're the most compelling, they're the most real, um, but also I think because they're the most socially sort of admirable. They are, they're creditable reasons to put ourselves at risk. Now the question becomes a bit more interesting, I think, when we throw material things into the, into the mix. Because as I said, those previous reasons are purely admirable. They all, they're, they're almost not very interesting to talk about because we just say, yep, those are good, those are good reasons to sacrifice a parent risking their lives to save their children. There's not much texture to that because it's, it's it seems fairly straightforward. But when we look at material things, that uh, I think it gets more interesting. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I always had to walk home about half an hour from school, half an hour to school, half an hour back from school. And a lot of that time was taken up with, with conversations. And a common one would be sort of hypotheticals, things like, would you spend a night in a haunted house for a million pounds? And essentially, that's the same question as would you risk your life for a million pounds, you know depending on your age, you know, staying in a haunted house is risking your life. So, so what degree of risk is acceptable for what level of material gain is the basic format of that question. Now, these are obviously much less morally admirable reasons for, for risking our lives. But we, luckily, because we're all hopefully in the private of our own home, maybe you listen as a group, I don't know, but, but we don't need to share our answers to those. So we can actually ask ourselves those questions as adults, quite honestly. We can hopefully answer them quite honestly. So, how great a risk would would I take for a big bag of money or a career advancement? And that sounds—they sound like silly questions, but there is there's obviously an acceptable level of risk at some point because you would, uh, you know, walk across the road if somebody was going to give you a promotion, probably. And walking across the road is in some tiny degree risky to your life, but you probably wouldn't. Uh, allow somebody to shoot a gun at you from 10 meters for 50 quid. Now, in between those two extremes, there must be a point at which you are willing to do the thing or you're not willing to do the thing. So as childish as it seems, there is a, there is a moment at which you would you go, ah, that's a willing risk I'll take for my life uh, in order for something material. Now, the hardest to answer angle on this question of what would you risk your life for is when it comes to abstract ideas. People might die for their country, for the idea of justice, uh, in a protest to enact change, to fight against oppression, for honour. Honour, I think, is really interesting, but I struggle with these the most. These are the hardest to really think about. At this point, I can't really generalise past my own response to this. Maybe I should go and ask some people about it. But I think it's ultimately because I have no idea what level of personal well-being I would risk for an idea. I can answer really the question about about money, personal gain. I can answer the question about loved ones. But for an idea, I'm lucky enough, I would consider myself lucky enough uh, in my life to not have had to have drawn a line in the sand and say, this is the hill I'm going to die on. This is the idea I will die for. So I don't really have a point of reference for this. Maybe because of that, I'm slightly sceptical of the idea. I haven't, I suppose, like Martin Luther King Jr. with his quotation... I haven't yet had that thing. I haven't really had my maybe the ideas that, that I base my life around threatened enough to have to, to, to draw a line in the sand. Instinctively instinctively for myself, I, I would say that any instance in which I would risk my life for an idea, it would actually really, if I dug down a little bit, be tied up with one of those other two motivations. Now, I can imagine uh, taking part in a dangerous protest or in a riot or something if the government was doing something absolutely horrible i can i can see it, i can see circumstances in which i would do that but on some level i think i would be doing that probably because of how the horrible government might hurt my family or or well maybe how it would affect me myself you know i am not going to get my pension or i'm uh, no longer going to be able to access the nhs for free now is that that's i mean maybe there's principle behind that but but i think at the heart of it really if we if we're honest about it that's a material thing I suppose on some level I'm suspicious of my own ability to aspire to what might be seen as more noble causes. Things like honour, dying for your country, for justice, you know, whatever whatever you, you hold to be important. And now this is all relevant because in our narratives of history, the way that we tell ourselves history, uh, particularly the histories that wind up being worthy of memorialization, and therefore the ones that this podcast is concerned with, this third, this most ephemeral kind of motivation, dying for an idea, that's often the one that looms largest over events. And I think that's potentially misleading because for myself, I can only ask myself as a a human being and perhaps for you, if you've just done some soul searching as well, the first two motivations, loved ones and material things, they're actually much more plausible, or at least they're much more directly understandable. So as we go through events in this episode, a lot of people will be doing lots of life risking, whether they want to or not, and I want you to be curious as to why, and not just to parcel it in with you know, with Nelson on the top of his column looking off nobly into into the middle distance and thinking of England, because I don't think that's really the motivation that in 99% of cases is the one that is that is pushing people forwards, and maybe more interestingly the question what would push you to do the same now in this episode uh, as as you may remember at the end of the second episode i left you on the cliffhanger before the battle is about to begin now this episode is going to concern essentially the, the 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 day of the battle of trafalgar now the sources for this episode, I'm, I've used lots of them and I've, I've, I've wanted to use as many first-hand sources as possible and personal accounts from sailors and so forth because that's going to be the objective of this episode really is to give us a, a, a first-person perspective as much as possible of what's going on. Now, because there are so many sources actually, a lot of these sailors are, are highly literate, the enlisted men, the, the, uh, the, the ordinary seamen and, and so forth, as well as the officers, a huge amount of journals were kept. Uh, so there is a lot of material. Uh, furthermore, there's you know up, upwards of of sixty ships in, involved in this action, and and each of them has you know getting on for a thousand men on board. So there's just a huge amount of stuff that happens. Now the nature of the battle as well is one that is deeply deeply confusing, and we're going to get onto why that is. So it would sort of be. Folly, I think, to try to give a really clear sort of uh, diagrammatic idea of what's actually going on in the battle. So, for that reason, I'm often going to just follow one ship, follow the Victory or something, as a, a sort of set piece example of what's going on. Often, I will be using accounts from people from all sorts of different ships, and hopefully, we're going to end up with a sort of uh, a sort of hybrid, cobbled together version of of a so, yeah, a hybrid character, one sailor from the voices of many, uh, one experience from the voices of many. And, and, and often it doesn't really matter which ship it's from because these these experiences are repeated over and over again throughout this this action. Now, back to the narrative. So as, as you probably remember, I, I left you in the night uh, before the night of the 20th of October on the 21st of October. 1805, the sun rose to a still day without much wind. The British fleet can now see the Allied fleet about nine miles distant from them. Midshipman William Badcock aboard the Neptune. There were lots of Neptunes present at this, at this battle because it's an obvious name for ships. Uh, this is aboard the, the British ship, the Neptune. He says, quote, The sun rose, which as it ascended from its bed of ocean looked hazy and watery, as if it smiled in tears on many brave hearts, which fate had decreed should never see it set. At the first dawn of day, a forest of strange masts was seen to leeward. End quote. Uh, that's a useful phrase. Leeward means the, the, the way that the wind is blowing. Windward is the way the wind is blowing. From leeward is the way the wind is blowing. So that means the wind is blowing from the British fleet towards the Allied fleet. And they're scattered, the Allied fleet. They're, they're kind of scattered all around. The night before, Villeneuve had give, given an order to, to form line of battle, which was the traditional way that, that these battles were fought, um, and they had failed because these ships had not sailed before together as a unit. They, hadn't, they, they weren't used to working together. They're still trying to slip away to the south. They're making for the Straits of Gibraltar uh, to get out into the Mediterranean. Uh, but on spotting Nelson's fleet, Villeneuve gives the order to turn back north to try and get back to Cadiz, which is, is the big... Port that is going to be a safe haven for them and this further complicates their attempt to form a line which they're already failing to do so they now reverse order that means each ship turns 180 degrees and what was the front ship now becomes the back ship and as they gradually come into formation Nelson gives the order to form up for attack at about 6 a.m. William Badcock continues quote it was a beautiful sight when their line was completed and their broadsides turned towards us showing their iron teeth End quote. Now Nelson used in his own writing, as I said, he he, he wrote about his own actions quite uh, prolifically. Uh, Nelson used this slightly self-congratulatory term, the Nelson touch, which is, you know, talking yourself about, about yourself in the third person is always difficult to pull off. Um, and this describes his approach to the battle, supposedly. On taking command of the fleet, he kind of immediately springs into his own command style. Remember, Nelson has... has has sailed down to take command of the fleet to in order to carry out this this great battle and he immediately over the, the two nights after after his arrival has all of the captains of his 27 ships to dinner on the victory and that's that's quite unusual the admiral could usually be a very removed a very aloof as i said sort of godlike figure and that the naval hierarchy that i've detailed extended you know into the community of officers as well but but nelson made a point of seeing all of his officers, face-to-face, immediately under his command. And these officers recognised the value of this. Codrington, who's um, one of the officers at the second dinner, said, quote, The superiority of Lord Nelson is in all of these social arrangements which bind his captains to their admiral, end quote. And the benefit of this binding to their admiral really was twofold. Firstly, it allowed him to actually share the, the intent and the content of his plans with them, And as we'll see, that's really important that they all had an actually clear idea of what they were supposed to be doing. And secondly, it gave him a chance to establish a sense sense of his personality and to impress upon his captains the confidence that he had in them. As we're going to see, his high risk strategy absolutely depended on all of his captains trusting that if things went wrong, he wouldn't turn around and blame it on them as we discussed in the last episode there's a huge amount of personal accountability and the, the buck has to stop somewhere in the royal navy and where it does stop quite nasty things happen to people and 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 part of nelson's sort of relationship with his with his his captains the successful part of it was that he made it very clear to them that if something goes wrong it's it's him who's accountable it's a bit like if we think about uh, medical malpractice with doctors you know they often don't do Things that actually might be best for the patient, because if it went wrong, they would be, you know, they would be sued and so forth. And they're sort of hampered by the by the machinery around them. And Nelson removed that hampering. He said, "Do do your best, essentially, um, and I'll take I'll take the flack if something goes really wrong." Now, Nelson's plan um, is interesting, and we need to know the plan before it takes place, because once it starts unfolding, we're not going to be able to follow it at all. At this time. The established naval doctrine which had been used for probably a couple of centuries before this is that fleets would form a long line the line of battle that's what Villeneuve has done he's got his he's got his boats all in a long line uh sort of bow to stern end to end um and the the other fleet would form a long line next to it parallel to it and at a few hundred yards distance they would just blast away at each other until one fleet's defeated or it runs away or as would often be the case nightfall comes and they call it a day. They they can't carry on. And this is necessitated really by the nature of the ships, by their architecture. They're long and they're thin because obviously they have to go through the water and they have to be aqua dynamic and all of that. And this means that all of their firepower has to project from the sides. So once you're you're in range of an, of an enemy ship, you have to turn side on and therefore you have to sail on parallel courses in order to stay within range of each other. And it's also necessitated... By the expense of these ships, by the, as I talked about last time, that, that they are such huge investments and there's so much, you can't really risk them in ridiculous uh, sort of suicidal maneuvers. So you stay at a distance and you just kind of hammer away at each other. Nelson, however, can see that this doesn't, this might be tactically the best thing to do, but it doesn't strategically meet his goals. It's not going and it's also not going to work to his fleet's strengths. Now, remember, his job is is not just to engage the Spanish and French ships; it is to destroy them, it is to completely wipe them out. Because, as we remember, going back to the first episode, if they can escape in the night, if they can get away, you know, if he if he destroys twenty percent of their of their strength, which would normally be considered a, a success they'll still go off in the night and they'll, they might manage to occupy the English Channel and he will have failed and the invasion will go ahead and it will all have been for nothing. So he's got a completely different strategic set of, of goals than this doctrine would usually try to meet. This is how Nelson outlined his plan to Captain Keats, who was a, a close friend of his. Quote, With the fleet formed in two lines, I shall go at them at once. If I can, about one third of their line from their leading ship. I think it will surprise and confound the enemy. They won't know what I'm about. It will bring forward a pell mell battle, and that is what I want. End quote. So to put that in perhaps slightly less flowery terms or to deconstruct that, Nelson's saying that rather than sailing parallel, he will he will form up his fleet into sort of two big battering rams, himself at the head of fourteen ships and Collingwood at the head of, of thirteen, Collingwood his his sort of second in command, and he's going to sail directly at the French and Spanish lines. Get right in amongst them. So they, I suppose if you imagine rather than two lines going parallel, you've got one line and then you've got sort of two, a bit like a T with two, uh, two stems, I suppose like a pi sign if you like, um, going perpendicular, straight at them. And this is where we get to our second Fosbury flop moment of this series. To go right back to the first episode, remember Mr. Fosbury uh, changing the game of the high jump simply by coming at it with a different set of principles. Our first one was Napoleon changing the rules of how war would work, how war would function. Nelson's doing exactly the same thing here. He sees the accepted way of doing things and he dismisses it. And in its place, he finds a paradigm shift that will allow his 27 ships to carry out, to use his phrase, a battle of annihilation on his enemy. And he essentially, this this is going to work, because he calculates that his ships, who are crewed by, by better sailors and better gunners and have higher morale, will win out in what he calls a pell-mell engagement. Now, to, to reflect on this, we, we mostly take all of our actions based on precedent, on received wisdom, yeah, on, on how the world normally works, because it would be exhausting otherwise. We would, we would be constantly having to think, oh, how can I approach this situation in a new and interesting way that will most efficiently make me cut through it? And and often we we would face ridicule for trying things in a in a silly way, thinking oh well maybe if I run sideways up these steps it will be quicker, or maybe if I you know eat my cereal off a plate it will be more efficient. So it it makes sense to use receive wisdom. And Nelson here is taking therefore a, a monstrous risk. You know because of the design of his his ships, because of the the, the this is the accepted way of engaging. These ships are are designed to project their firepower from the sides so that and well and they're, they're designed to receive fire from the sides as well they're armored the, the wood on the sides is thicker the front and the rear of these ships for, for that reason to save weight are really vulnerable they're built thinner so these ships sailing into the towards the french and the, and the spanish fleet are open to what's called raking fire and that means that they're being hit from the front So the cannonballs are not only more likely to penetrate because they've got less wood to go through, but also they they will pass all the way down the deck, all the way down these open decks. And essentially, it's much more likely that something is gonna get in the way, you know, a person is gonna get in the way of the cannonball as it goes down, well, or three or four or five people. Not only this, but because all of their cannon are are facing sideways, they have a few cannon pointing forward uh, on the the top deck usually, these are called chasers for, for chasing, smaller ships usually. But essentially the British are going to be unable to return fire for their entire approach. Their approach is going to be about a mile at long range, or that's the, that's the, that's the distance at which they're going to be within range. So if these ships are travelling at 10 miles per hour, let's say, which is kind of top speed, that's going to be six or seven minutes of being fired at by something like a thousand cannons. However, if the wind isn't strong and right behind them, which is what's going to be needed for 10 miles an hour, it can be a lot longer than six or seven minutes. This strategy, though, I know I've just outlined its, its possible weak points, did have its advantages. It wasn't just a crap plan from Nelson. The idea of a pell-mell battle from Nelson relied on being kind of in amongst the French and Spanish at extremely close range, like touching each other, which, as we see, is, is, is what comes up. The British gunnery was reckoned to be a lot better. It had a kind of a reputation of being better. We'll look into whether or not that's true. And in the kind of ship-to-ship action, kind of one-on-one was the idea of what he wanted, it was reckoned the British would have a big advantage. And furthermore, just as the enemy would be firing, raking fire onto the British on their approach, as soon as the British passed between the French and Spanish ships, they would then be raking them. I know that's kind of difficult to picture, but essentially it's called crossing the T. You know, your ship forms the the top bar of the T to their ship, and therefore they can't really shoot at you, and you can shoot all the way down their deck. Also, the British ships, which were were, were very highly drilled to do this when passing through the, the French and Spanish line, would be able to do what's called fighting both sides, which means both sides of their guns, all of their guns at once, would be able to fire at the ship on their, on their left and their right, or if we're going to be... Uh, properly nautical about it on their port and starboard sides. Now, Nelson was a believer that each captain had to understand why he was doing what he was doing. That's why the dinner parties were were important. So that in the chaos of battle, each captain could apply his own judgment in the, the best course of action. And testament to this is actually that not only did Nelson have these dinner parties with his immediate uh, subordinates, but also that he insisted that they would be sort of shared down the ranks uh, amongst the ships. Uh, Lieutenant Cumby of the Bellerophon had the following to say, quote, the captain produced and requested me to peruse Lord Nelson's private memorandum, which having read, he inquired whether I perfectly understood the admiral's instructions. I replied, they were so distinct and explicit that it was quite impossible they could be misunderstood. He said he wished me to be made acquainted with it, that in the event of his being bowled out, which, just as a side note, we get all sorts of these sorts of euphemisms, bowled out obviously meaning um, hit with a cannonball, um, I might know how to conduct the ship agreeably to the Admiral's wishes. On this I observed that it was very possible that the same shot which disposed of him might have an equally tranquilizing effect upon me, end quote. And uh, and he goes on, they, they then actually decide to tell the Master as well, who's I suppose the next sort of third in command quote poor Overton the master was desired to read the memorandum which he did and here may I be permitted to remark that of the three officers who carried the knowledge of this private memorandum into action I was the only one who brought it out end quote so I suppose there you can see that this paid off eventually and that uh, in that Cumbie was the only officer to actually survive the action his plan actually for his reserve at Trafalgar which he ended up not doing kind of sums this up he said quote I shall put them under an officer who I am sure will employ them in a manner I wish. If possible, I shall feel certain he will employ them effectively and perhaps in a more advantageous manner than if he could have followed my orders." And this doesn't seem like much. This is quite kind of common within modern management delegation processes, but it's not the standard way of doing things in this rather autocratic time. He's basically just saying he trusts his captains to act properly and to maybe sometimes... Do something that he wouldn't have done, and that that might be a better thing. I mean, that that was the spirit in which he carried out his own command, making his own decisions and screwing whatever anyone else thought he should do. And he kind of wanted his own captains to do that as well, because he knew that in the moment they would have a better view of what was going to be happening. Now, this seems really important because he he's actually he suited his expectations to the limitations of the time. It's kind of weird to think actually that a lot of these battles are carried out with a sense of, well, the, the, the admiral's got to be in complete control of what's happening and you've got to look at his ship and you've got to uh, follow his flag signals and everything and he's going to conduct the whole thing. Now, that to me seems like a weird structure. To, that kind of would work if you had telephones and radios and so forth. But they've decided on this structure at a time in which the, the best way of doing this really is going to be with, with flags during battle. And Nelson's recognised that limitation and, well, he, he, he finishes his instruction to his captains at, at, the, at the, the briefing, the pre-battle briefing, with the memorable phrase, quote, no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of an enemy, end quote. And this degree of trust can be seen more deeply in his memorandum to his, his second-in-command, his friend Admiral Collingwood. He said, quote, I send you my plan of attack. As far as a man dare venture to guess at the very uncertain position the enemy may be found in, but, my dear friend, it is to place you perfectly at your ease respecting my intentions and to give full scope to your judgment for carrying them into effect. We can, my dear Cole, have no little jealousies. We have only one great object in view, that of annihilating our enemy and getting a glorious peace for our country. No man has more confidence in another than I have in you, and no man will render your services more justice than your very old friend, Nelson." now uh, besides being a, a touching way of talking about killing lots of people um, we can see at the end of this will render your services more justice as a you know that's his as his last this is parting words and that's that underlines this overarching concern of reputation nelson convinces his captains that he's an admiral that will bring his his captains opportunity for glory and moreover you know, he will, he will render their services justice. He, he will give them their due in the broader society that they're functioning in, which values this honour, this, honor, this uh, sort of being mentioned in dispatches so highly that that's, that's the last thing he mentions to his, his, his good friend. And here I think that you know, we, can, we can see Nelson maybe deserves more recognition as a manager than as a tactician. His plan was essentially, there is no plan. He's basically set up the incentives for those under him to, if all goes, you know, in the confusion of strategy and manoeuvring is is taken out of the picture. If all of that, all of the the smart ideas are taken away and we just get into a pell-mell battle and they can simply apply their fighting abilities to the best of their ability and he set up the incentives that will will make them do that, then they should win. So with the fleet formed up at 6.40 a.m., Nelson gives the order to clear for action. To clear for action basically means to, to prepare for battle. So I thought it would be worth going over some of the, the preparations that would be made for battle because I think they're really indicative of the, the horrors to come. Uh, the, the British had made some, some quite ingenious sort of preparations for this specific battle. As Nelson knew it was going to be so utterly chaotic, they had uh, painted the bottom of their masts yellow. Like the the bottom few meters of their mast, like bright yellow, so that once they were in amongst the enemies and they were all tangled up, they could recognise other British ships, so hopefully avoid friendly fire. Nelson's ships also kind of famously all had what was called the Nelson checker, which is uh, again, as I spoke about last last episode, the sort of uh, blend of, of sort of fashion and frippery that goes along with these war machines. Uh, the Nelson checker was that all of the the ships would be painted with. Uh, these black and yellow stripes down the sides that meant that once their gun ports were open, they would essentially get get a sort of checkerboard effect of black and yellow. And Nelson really liked this and he had done one of his ships in this style. And all of the other captains who, you know, he, he didn't tell them they had to paint their ships like this, but in a sort of homage to him, they had decided, oh, we'll do the Nelson checker on our ship as well. Um, immediately before the, the the battle, once this order to clear for action came, the, the bulkheads, these sort of... Uh, temporary walls on the gun decks would be removed so rather than having the captain's cabin and all of these these uh, lovely staterooms and so forth the ships would be transformed into these open gun platforms end to end. Across both fleets uh, individuals make these reports of these rather telling preparations Uh, the more experienced sailors often guiding those who hadn't been in battle before and I say these preparations are telling because they, they, illustrate, they illustrate what's to come more clearly than any literal description could. For example, Collingwood, uh, Nelson's second-in-command, remarks to Lieutenant Clavel. He says, quote, You'd better put on silk stockings, as I have done. If one should get shot in the leg, they should be ma- more manageable for the surgeon. End quote. Again, a, a, a collision of the realities of war and the uh, well, the silk stockings of genteel life. The surgeons that he speaks about uh, sharpened their instruments in the all-op deck, that, that, that low half deck below the water line that would serve as an operating theatre. In the powder magazines, the gunners, wearing special uh, leather slippers to prevent striking any sparks from the ground, would check their cartridges. They would pass them to these 10-year-old, 9-year-old boys who would go and distribute them to the guns. Water butts were filled on the decks. Um, and the decks were soaked as a pre- precaution against fire the rigging was reinforced with chains to limit the quantity of debris that would inevitably shower down onto the decks uh, the carpenters and the carpenters mates would prepare what were called shot plugs which are kind of ready prepared corks to be shoved into cannonball holes the gun crews who made up the, the made up the absolute vast majority of the crew would all strip down to the waist usually this was to avoid dirty clothing really being dragged into any wounds and also to to keep them cooler in what would become hellishly hot conditions on the gun decks they would wrap their discarded shirts off and around their heads around their ears to defend against the coming noise they would drink pretty much any alcohol to hand most accounts seem to suggest uh, William Robinson on the revenge noted uh, quote some would be offering a guinea for a glass of grog whilst others were making a sort of mutual verbal will such as... If a shot knocks my head off, you will take my effect, and if you are killed and I am not, why, I will have all of yours, End quote. On a Spanish ship, a newly pressed sailor said, quote, early in the morning the decks were cleared for action, and when all was ready for serving the guns and working the ship, I heard someone say, the sand, bring the sand, and sacks of sand were emptied out on the upper decks, the sand being spread about so as to cover all the planking. The same thing was done between the decks. My curiosity prompted me to ask a lad who stood next to me what this was for. For the blood, he said very coolly. I looked at the sand. I looked at the men who were busily employed on this task, and for a moment I felt I was a coward. End quote. So it's <laughs> worth remembering that people, only people like him, he was quite likely a, a shepherd or a farmer or something who had lived near Cadiz and had been pressed into service because they needed, needed sailors. And once these preparations are complete... Marines, you know, the, those essentially the kind of military police, those, those soldiers on the ships are posted at the hatches to basically stop anyone other than an officer from coming or going. The men are kind of shut below decks until the job is done. And they're instructed on the anticipated long approach to lie down between their guns. That's in the British fleet. And I'll, I'll leave it to you to imagine the atmosphere of being amongst those, those men lying down there. Now, there's, a, there's a, a phrase that's floated around in the, in the 200 years since this battle, uh, Nelson's band of brothers. And it's, it's thrown around and it's, it's often associated with Trafalgar. And of course, it's, it's an allusion that Nelson actually himself made uh, using Shakespeare's words from Henry V uh, when actually referring to his captains at the Battle of the Nile. And the accuracy of this phrase, the band of brothers, is, is difficult because there are two sides to it. Now, in terms of those captains that he was referring to at the Nile, it doesn't really apply to Trafalgar because very few of the captains at Trafalgar had actually served with Nelson already. So the brotherhood idea is is kind of ambivalent. Uh, Michael Duffy actually outlines the, the relative inexperience of, of the the British fleet's captains, which, you know, band of brothers suggests this sort of elite squad, and, and I, I'm not convinced that's really the case. Uh, Duffy says, quote, "...only five of his 27 ships of the line at Trafalgar had been in his former Mediterranean fleet. Only 10 of the ships of the line captains had served under him before. Apart from Nelson and Collingwood, only five captains had commanded a ship in the line of battle before." Of the remainder of Nelson's ships of the line commanders, there is no record of six having ever been in a fleet battle. Six, including one admiral, had not been in a fleet battle since the War of American Independence over 20 years before, and one does not seem to have been in a battle or a small ship action at all, end quote. Now, this this is interesting when thrown into the light of Nelson's kind of crazy plan. It appears to be that rather than experience actually, morale and willingness to accept Nelson's rather unusual plan maybe maybe were more important. In a battle, maybe, that's going to upset norms, that's going to upset the, the traditional dogma of, of how things are done, experience might actually be a disadvantage. So Berry, uh, Captain Berry of the Agamemnon, was said to have been in more ship actions than anyone else present, including Nelson. He, over the course of this action, expends 6,000 pounds of powder and 1,000 shot and he never engaged any of the enemy closely or really infected, inflicted any damage that, uh, that anyone could point to. So the most experienced captain there just kind of didn't get involved. And that's possibly because he's simply following the way that he learned how to do things. And these younger captains, the ones who were less experienced, appear to have kind of bought into the, the cult of personality that, that Nelson had, had created and were willing to do what he was asking them to do. The phrase the Band of Brothers does play into the legend of Trafalgar, and that's why I think it's stuck to it. It kind of sneakily alludes to quite a few different things. Uh to the English beating up the French at Agincourt, you know, from Henry V. Uh that's a parallel really that makes no sense, given the well, the relative parity of forces at, at Trafalgar. It's it's a it's a relatively close fight. Um and it's a bit of a theme that, that really will recur that I brought up in previous episodes. A lot of British national myth involves casting the British as plucky underdogs. And Band of Brothers plays into that. A band suggests few men. Again, brothers suggests that their, their closeness to one another and their pluck is what brings them through, rather than, you know, a massive juggernaut, which realistically is what the, what the British Empire was. It also suggests a kind of good humour and fellowship. You know, and that those those are what 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 pull people through, and that these were key factors in victory. Um, and along with with bloody-minded butchery, which is which is as we're going to see the heart of things, this idea of fellowship does have a degree of truth. There are, are a few honourable mentions at Trafalgar that uh, that might belong to a band of brothers and will pop up during this episode. So I'll go through the kind of central cast. We have Admiral Collingwood, who I've already mentioned several times. He is Nelson's second in command. He is a, a career-long friend. He's the kind of strict, abstemious man, rather the foil to Nelson, I suppose. An excellent administrator. Uh, He's commendable in his ability to take the the rather difficult spot of of playing second fiddle to a national celebrity, and he does it pretty well. Uh, There's Thomas Hardy, who is going to pop up quite a lot. Not Thomas Hardy, the, the famous novelist, not Tom Hardy, the famous actor. But Thomas Hardy, who is Nelson's loyal flag captain. A flag captain is basically the captain that actually commands the ship that the admiral is on, because obviously the admiral doesn't have time to also do the business of commanding a ship. He's a a very tall man. He's known as the ghost uh, for his silent pacing. Um, He walked apparently in such a stooped way that it was said the appearance of his bald dome announced his approaching arrival into a room. And he spent so long with Nelson uh, that he was said to take very small steps out of habit uh, of matching Nelson's rather shorter stride. We have Alexander Scott, who's going to play a big role in the personal story of Nelson in this battle. He's Nelson's chaplain uh, and Nelson's uh, secretary as well. Um, also a multilingual intelligence officer. So in the movie that inevitably after this uh, series is completed will be made, he's an obvious uh, character. Uh, but more broadly, other than these these few characters who are going to play an important role... It could be suggested, and I think rather the band of brothers idea, is actually suggesting that the 17,000 sailors of Nelson's fleet were a band of brothers. Now at about 11.45am, just before the beginning of battle, Nelson orders probably the most famous ever signal to be made by flags. Somebody's obviously going to take me up on that being completely wrong, but, but that's what I'm saying. I'll recount it uh, in the words of the man responsible for it, the victory's uh, signal flag officer, a guy called Lieutenant Pasco. He says, quote, His lordship came to me on the poop, and about a quarter to noon said, Mr Pascoe, I want you to say to the fleet, England confides that every man will do his duty. You must be quick, for I have one more to add, and it is close for action. I replied, if your lordship will permit me to substitute expects for confides, the signal will be sooner completed... Uh, because the word expects is in the signal book and confides must be spelt out. His lordship replied in haste and in seeming satisfaction. That will do, Pasco. make it directly. England expects that every man will do his duty. That's the that's the flag signal. And this is an important moment because it rings down the ages and it, it crystallizes a lot of our modern perceptions of the battle. And, and indeed the age, as I said, the age of sail, you know, when... When ships were made of wood, men were made of iron. And like many significant moments in this narrative, in the narrative we draw of history more broadly, it's acted as a sort of magnet for all of the apocrypha, um, all of the bits of myth and stuff that, 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 you know, both in the accepted story and in the revisions that are eventually made to it. So the normal interpretation is that this signal goes out, and as it's repeated down the line of ships, it's met with a great cheer and rounds of "Rule Britannia. And this is rather more romantic, and, uh, and it neatly fits the, the kind of band of brothers idea. However, like most neat historical narratives, it's also it's pretty two-dimensional, because it, beca- it casts British sailors as these kind of lion-hearted patriots who are as eager as Nelson to die in the line of duty, and I find that hard to believe. The, uh, the first-hand accounts were kind of ambivalent. Second Lieutenant Ellis on the Ajax recounts, quote, I delivered with becoming dignity the sentence, rather anticipating that the effects on the men would be to awe them with its grandeur. Jack, which means the sailors, uh, however, did not appreciate it. For there were murmurs from some, whilst others in an audible whisper murmured, Do our duty. Of course we'll do our duty. I've always done mine, haven't you? Still, the men cheered vociferously, more, I believe, from love and admiration of their admiral and leader, End quote. The reinterpretations that can be made are commonly seen uh, in the, the wording of this message and in Nelson's intention. As we saw from Pascoe's account, Nelson uh, c- confides in his original message, and confides was replaced with the more convenient word expect, because it was already in the signal book. Further to this, uh, Lieutenant George Brown, who was also present, offers an extra revision. He says, quote, the substitution was expects for the word confides, the latter word not being in the telegraph book. And I think the word England had been substituted for Nelson uh, for the same reason, end quote. So with these two revisions, that becomes a really, a really different message. That would b- change. England expects that every man will do his duty to Nelson confides that every man will do his duty. And which would you rather hear? If you were a sailor, if you had spent almost all of your life at sea with the men around you under the command of men like this Admiral Nelson, uh, on whom your well-being totally depended, and were now under the command of this national celebrity, would you rather that the country, safe over a thousand miles away from you, that appears maybe not to care about you very much, uh, expects that you will do your duty or that the man who, you know, as as a lot of these accounts suggest, you've come to love and to admire and who will be at the head of this attack, in, in absolutely in the way of danger, standing unprotected on the quarterdeck, is confident that you will do your duty, confides that you will do your duty. Now, assuming that this is true, that those two revisions are the case, I think Nelson was cal- calculating, or, or rather felt, that his men would respond to the confidence of their admiral better than to the expectation of their country. And that comes back to the question of what would you risk death for? And the deeper level of introspection uh, around this, you know, was was in part prompted by this, the the, the the revised ideas of what this message actually was. I never really liked the England expects message, and it's, it's pasted all over stuff, it's all over... Uh, Old, like ex-servicemen's clubs and, and, and naval clubs and all sorts of things. Um, and I was delighted to have found this Nelson confides one and I found myself quite willing to look past the possibility that it itself was made up. And that's interesting, isn't it that obviously we the original account of the, the, the accepted story I think is too neat and doesn't really fit, but that this uh, revision to the myth is one that I'm way more comfortable with and one that I like, the one that I'm really willing to buy into. And I think it's because it allows me to bypass the jingoistic rhetoric of England, but it still gives me permission to be stirred by it in a way that maybe in the modern world we're sort of not meant to be anymore by these things. And whatever the truth of the intended signal was, uh, it does warrant a a consideration of the, the men that it was intended for. So who were these sailors? We began this whole series with that image of Nelson on his 50 metre pedestal at the centre of London. Um, and when I look at that, I can't help but think of the, of the tens of other thousands of other people who were at Trafalgar. And they are actually present on the monument um, in the kind of reliefs or friezes on the four sides of the plinth at the bottom of it. And they show details of the battle there in sort of black uh, bronze or something, I imagine. And you can look them up. In fact, I would I would, I would suggest looking them up. Because um, they're fairly interesting, they actually illustrate uh, moments from the battle and and have you know the the, the sailors who were present there. Um, the first of these sailors to note uh, that rather enca- encapsulates the paradox of these men is a guy called John Room. Uh, Room was the signal man that actually hoisted the flags. I talked about the signal officer Pasco; he would put together the message, but the S- Room was the signal man, the man who actually hoisted the flags. England expects that every man will do his duty. Um, Room. Room's story is fairly well documented. Um, He was press-ganged into the Royal Navy against his will in 1803. Uh, That's only two years before this battle. And he was young enough that there are actual photographs of him as a very old man, you know, towards the end of the the 19th century. Quite a characterful-looking guy. You can look him up. Um, The perfect kind of poetry of this man, who is forced into service and then is the one that hoists these flags saying that England expects you know that really sums up how far the image of these lion-hearted Britons spontaneously bursting into song cannot be the the whole story. Um, A very large part of the fleet wasn't actually British uh, about ten percent of Victory's crew was was non-British, uh, which is pretty big in a in a pre-globalisation world. In a you know, in certainly the population of the British Isles was not more than ten percent non-British. Th- these were very multicultural, sort of uh, uh, cosmopolitan places. There were there were men from Denmark, from Greece, India, America, all over Africa, uh, Norway, Portugal, Holland, Malta. I say all over Africa because. At that time, the African nations were were pretty different in the way that they were split up and so forth. So it would be sort of uh, anachronistic to try to say which nations they're from. But essentially, all over the British Empire's holdings all over Africa, which was pretty much all of it, scattered all over the place. Um, And I could go on, there are more. Uh, There were Frenchmen in the British fleet, which is interesting. Uh, The whole of Ireland at this point, of course, was under British rule. So lots of Irish sailors were actually fighting in both the British fleet and also in the French and, and the Spanish fleet, as they had arguably a, a lot better a <laughs> reason to fight against uh, the British. Uh, the Americans had just finished fighting the War of Independence against the British Empire, and they were there in high numbers on both sides. And I can't imagine really many of these people had a particularly misty-eyed attachment to the idea of England. The multinational gathering here was really due to the Royal Navy's habit of just sort of rounding people up in ports, getting them drunk, getting them to sign on the dotted line. Uh, they didn't really have to sign. They, if, they, if they took what's called the king's shilling, which was essentially their first kind of bit of wages, uh, they had taken pay and therefore they were in service and they had tacitly signed a contract. There was the press gang, which I was mentioned. Uh, John Room was press ganged, uh, which is probably the most well-known kind of controversial area of the Royal Navy. Uh, this was a bit of British law that made it the Navy's right to make use of those using the sea. Yeah, that's the actual wording of the law. Make use of those using the sea. And again, this viewing sailors, people capable of sailing as a kind of national commodity rather than as individual people. Um, and essentially, they would just round people up in coastal towns and force them to serve. Many sailors were criminals. Many of them were given the option of, of service in exchange for their sentence. Uh, so it's hardly a volunteer service. And their relationship to the nation that they were fighting for was complicated at, at best the circumstances of all of these men were different and were unique and their reasons for being there were different and unique. Um, here are a couple that we know about that are just I think fascinating case studies. As I said uh, the, the the levels of literacy amongst the men is far higher than you would think. The image we might have of, is, is of kind of an ignorant uh, perhaps a rather poetically ignorant uh, sailor exploring the world and of course he wouldn't need to write but they spent lots of time Without very much to do, and for that reason, often things they did were learning to write and then keeping journals. And uh, and 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 well, by necessity, because they travelled the world, they were often rather cultured, rather uh, insightful people, and 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 arguably far less ignorant than much of the rest of the general populace uh, in terms of what they'd seen. Uh, John Nicholl, uh, in his in his in his written journal, uh, says he he's, he was from a farming family. He had taken to the sea uh, because he had read Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe came along kind of at the start of the Age of Sail and, uh, and arguably inspired quite a lot of people to, to, to sign up. Uh, he served at the Battle of the Nile. Uh, he, um, he made observations of, of the societies that he saw in Polynesia and in China when he was, he was uh, posted to, to a ship that was over there. Um, he was exhilarated when he saw China. Uh, he comments on the immense number of buildings stretching into the air as far as the eye could reach. Um, he says it's so like their paintings. He calls them cultured and interesting people. He was on a ship called the, the Lady Juliana, transporting convicts to Australia. Uh, he eventually fell in love with a convict uh, named Sarah Whitlam. She bore a child to him during the voyage and uh, he had to continue with the ship after after she had been dropped off with the child he continued with the ship but uh, but they agreed to marry once he came back he said he was going to come back to australia and settle there um however he couldn't find her because she had sadly gotten married in the in the interim uh to another man in new south wales and and she had escaped with him to india uh, another man is a guy called james choice uh he died alone in brighton in 1836 that's the end of his story um, but his journal describes how he went to sea at sixteen from London. Uh, he was taken prisoner by the Spaniards uh, off a whaler off the coast of Peru. Uh, he lived as a prisoner for several years. He became a pirate before being arrested by the French, being imprisoned in France. Whilst a prisoner in France, he, uh, he, in his own words, he disowned the name of an Englishman as it had always been unlucky for me. Who would not serve so good a master as Bonaparte? End quote. Um, however, he then saw a British ship of the line, the Theseus, off the Brittany coast, uh, and uh, he, he basically swam over to them and he told them he had escaped from a French prison and he wanted to sign on. And this is actually in the log of the Theseus, this event of this guy swimming up to them. So, so at least part of this very tall tale is definitely true. So from this story, I mean, he's served with, with all of the nations present. He has been in all of their navies at some point in some, in some degree. So a sense of of loyalty and community, I think, to the 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 people that you're serving with, it's well, or the sense of loyalty or community is much more complex than than it could than a loyalty to nation could possibly explain. During this this period, uh, agriculture was in a really big period of decline. It began in the kind of mid mid eighteenth century. Um, and that was spurred by industrialization and farming. so agriculture needed far fewer people to, to do it. Um, and people needed to find alternatives and at at exactly this time, you know people people were needed to feed the industry of the growing militaries and the growing industrial complexes um, and the commercial empire that was growing up. So just as agriculture is becoming more automated, uh, globalization is beginning to take root and this meant a growing community of sailors. People for whom I would contend uh, a sailor would be their primary identity, not an Englishman, not a Frenchman or an American. Uh, during the Seven Years' War, 1756, uh, 10,000 seamen were in service. By the end of the Seven Years' War, 84,000 seamen were in service. That's the kind of size of this community, of this subsect of society within within the UK, but within all of these countries that's growing. Um, and this was a community with a, with a really strong sense of identity. They dressed differently. They talked differently. They walked differently, it was said, um, and they were regarded as outsiders by people that worked the land. Not necessarily as a kind of pariah outsider, but as outsiders, as a sort of alien species. And there was a um, there was a power in this community. There was a power of being a resource in great demand in a in an age when lots of people, you know, working people had very very little power. Seamen actually had the ability to to exert control, as we saw in the Spithead mutiny, which I, I detailed before. You know, they wouldn't go until their wages were increased. They received better rations. A simultaneous mutiny of 30,000 men on 80 ships. And they demanded a royal pardon. They, they said, hey, look, if the French attack will work, but otherwise we're, we're kind of working to contract, as it were. And that's way before really the, the, uh, the golden age of trade unionism and of, of workers banding together and, and demanding their rights. Um, but, but this is the sailors essentially recognizing you need us we're gonna serve the nation faithfully uh, if you show us the consideration we deserve, you value us in the way that we need to be valued. And then once their requests were granted, they they made good on their promise. Um, there's definitely a kind of tribal aspect to this group. There's a loyalty to the ship, to the crew, Uh, This extended at Trafalgar, I think, to a loyalty to the fleet, you know, to a belonging to those serving under Nelson. Um, A surgeon wrote, quote, The mind of these men is trained to brave the fury of the elements with a degree of contempt for danger and death that is to be met with nowhere else. Excluded by the employment they have chosen from all society, the deficiencies of education are not felt, and information on general affairs is not courted. Their pride consists in being reputed a thoroughbred seaman, and they look on all landsmen as beings of an inferior order, end quote. You know, Joseph, Joseph Conrad rather kind of caps off the end of this age. Daniel Defoe with Robinson Crusoe starts it, and, and Joseph Conrad at the end. Conrad actually served on, on clipper ships. He witnessed the end of the age of sail, and he said, quote, These were men who knew toil, privation, violence, debauchery, but they knew not fear, and they had no spite in their hearts. They were men hard to manage, but easy to inspire, voiceless men, but men enough to scorn in their hearts the sentimental voices that bewailed the hardness of their fate. It was a fate unique to them, and the capacity to bear it appeared to them the privilege of the chosen. They were the everlasting children of the mysterious sea. End quote. And that's quite a... Uh, the everlasting children of the mysterious sea. is a very Joseph Conrad sort of turn of phrase. But the phrase, it was a fate unique to them, and the capacity to bear it appeared to them the privilege of the chosen, I think sums up the sort of bloody-minded idea that they were... Um, they were privileged to be in this position of, uh, of, of, of suffering and sacrifice because they were capable of dealing with it. I suppose it goes back to Henry V, uh, you know, the Band of Brothers stuff and, uh, you know, we few, we happy few. That's rather what this is all harping on. Um, but here, here we're really talking here about motivations that are no less romantic than patriotic fervor. Than, you know, than England expects. I don't think they're any lesser than that. In fact, I think they're kind of higher flown to some extent. Um, but going back to that initial question, what would you be willing to risk your life for? I find filial love, friendship, identity, far more plausible as ideas that you would be willing to die for than, than England. So with all this in mind, uh, I can't help but think Nelson confides that every man will do his duty would have meant a lot more to these men. But enough um, abstract musings, time to get back to the, the events of the day. So the whole fleet, as we left them, the whole British fleet is now tracking towards the French line in two columns, one headed by Nelson with 14 ships, one headed by Collingwood with 13. And it will have to cross the open sea for, for potentially a mile or two under enemy fire. At the last minute, uh, Nelson was actually prevailed upon To drop back to second or third in his column to avoid being the sort of tip of the spear that would have to take the most uh, fire. Uh, In in a sort of slightly confusing term, it seems that Nelson agreed, uh, but then just kept all of his sails set and was basically racing the other ship. So he kind of said, Yeah, sure, you can go at the front, uh, but I'm just going to carry on at full speed. So if you can overtake me, then absolutely fine. Um, The Temeraire. Uh, and the Neptune tried to to overtake, but but couldn't, and so Nelson remained at the at the very tip of the spear. This race, however, it's it is a race, it's but it's taking place at, at about one point five miles per hour. Uh, as I mentioned, these these British ships had been battered by years at sea; they're dragging barnacles and these big sort of beards of of uh, weeds and stuff that have attached to the hull underneath the waterline, um, and it was quite a still day. And 1.5 miles per hour is a horribly slow speed. That sort of half-walking speed, that's like a sort of sidle um, if you are facing hundreds of cannons for every minute that you're, you're on the approach. We get a sense of what the waiting was like from a Marine lieutenant called John Owen, who was aboard the Belisle. He says, quote, Captain Hargood had taken his station at the forepart of the quarterdeck, whence he issued his orders for the men to lie down at their quarters. And with the utmost coolness, directing the steering of the ship, the silence on board was almost awful. It was broken only by the firm voice of the captain, steady or starboard a little, and occasionally by an officer calling to the now impatient men, lie down there, End quote. Collingwood's royal sovereign was actually ahead of Nelson by, by quite a distance, um, and it would have really been the centre of attention if we think of these, I mean, there aren't, we don't know exactly how many men, but, but tens of thousands of men, really, all of their attention would have been on the Royal Sovereign both in the Allied fleet and in the British fleet as it came to within a few hundred yards of the Allied line and about a hundred cannon open fire on it. And this was the risk of Nelson's plan. The lead ships would be the sole focus of the fire of the Allied fleet until they could get in amongst them. The French and the Spanish approach to gunnery was to fire into the ship's rigging, to, essentially to shoot high, to shoot into the ropes and the masts and the sails and to disable them and then to leave them sitting there at that point. If they could do that, the Royal Sovereign would be, it would be game over because they would be sat there bobbing, at, you know, shooting ducks in a barrel, as it were. Uh, 16-year-old Lieutenant Paul Nicholas said, quote, "'As we advance, destruction rapidly increases.'" My eyes were horror-struck at the bloody corpses around me, and my ears rang with the shrieks of the wounded and the moans of the dying. At this moment, seeing that almost every man was lying down, I was half disposed to follow the example. But a certain monitor seemed to whisper, Stand up. Do not shrink from your duty. This state of things had lasted about twenty minutes, and it required the tact of the more experienced officers to keep up the spirits of those men around them by repeating, We'll soon begin our work. Our energies were joyfully called into play by the command, Stand to your guns end quote. I really wouldn't blame him for lying down, but uh, what he means when he says that he would like to lie down amongst the men is that is that the officers, even 16-year-old Lieutenant Paul Nicholas, really a boy, uh, because of the, uh, I suppose, the expectations of gentlemanly conduct had to stand, had to, uh, you know, just kind of stand there and act like they didn't care about the fact that there were 100 cannons being fired at them. And the royal Sovereign was battered by this fire as it sort of unbelievably weathered the storm of of cannonballs, and eventually, after, well as, as, uh, as Nicholas says, twenty minutes, but but the, the, the accounts differ and timings are quite chaotic in this battle, but something in the region of twenty minutes to half an hour, it eventually creeping along at 1.5 miles per hour, squeezes in between. Uh, the French ship Fugo and the Spanish ship uh, Santa Ana, And it begins this furious close-up fight, the very beginning of what Nelson terms this pell-mell battle. Nelson at, the, at, the, at this time is, is aiming at the Santissima Trinidad. The Santissima Trinidad is part of the, the Spanish fleet at this time. It's, a, it's an unusually huge four-decked ship. Uh, at this point, I think it's the ship carrying the most guns in the world, uh, something in the region of 120 Uh, as he reckons Villeneuve's flagship is going to be nearby to this, the the absolute biggest ship in the fleet, Um, and his idea is to go and cut the head off. And soon after Collingwood starts his fight, the victory itself comes within about 600 yards of the Allied fleet and begins to take fire as well. This happens almost exactly at the same time as the wind drops to nothing, and the victory is just moved forward by the swell and by its own momentum as it comes under fire from hundreds of cannon. Uh, part of the, the foremast, that's the the frontmost mast, gets shot away. The wheel is destroyed, utterly obliterated. Uh, so the ship from this point actually has to be steered by 20 sailors hauling directly on the tiller. Uh, a splinter bruises Captain Hardy's foot uh, and it knocks off a buckle. And uh, he, he and Nelson check each other for injury. They both remark on this moment. As the ships open fire, Villeneuve hauls up his flag on the Bucontor, which is his flagship, and Nelson sees it and he aims the victory to slide in between it and the ship behind the Red Now the fact that Nelson and Collingwood both managed to traverse this danger zone under the combined fire of of several ships each uh, suggests perhaps some sort of shortcoming on behalf of the Allied fleet. So well, we'll take a we'll take a little look at this into the relative merits of these fleets and what and why they were so different. Firstly, we I think it's worth thinking about why the British Navy was considered so good. Firstly, we have the sailors. There's a kind of uh, an institutional or a cultural tradition that meant that Great Britain fielded better sailors, supposedly. Uh, this tradition takes generations generations to build, and it's it's very difficult to quantify what it really means. Um, it's it's similar, perhaps, to understand in in a parallel question um, that crops up with the British use of the longbow during the Hundred Years' War, several hundred years before this, but a, a, a relatively similar sort of sort of a question. Um, the longbow w- dominated the medieval battlefield during the well, particularly during the first kind of half of the of the Hundred Years' War, um, and at battles like Agincourt and Cressy and, and so forth, it it seemed to have a sort of outsized Weight and effect on actions, and and people debate that, but but it's it's pretty much agreed to be a sort of a super weapon of the era. Um, and an obvious question that that sprang sprang to my mind learning about this is well, why didn't the French just get some longbows as well, and then they would they would be on on a kind of parity? Um, and it's not really a secret how to make or to operate a longbow. That's the thing. It's not that it was a top secret. It's not like radar during the Second World War or something. It's not like a, a top secret piece of, of technology that's going to really uh, be difficult to make. The problem is actually a societal one. It's it's that that on an well on an individual level, in order to fire a longbow, the archer needed uh, back and arm muscles that were so overdeveloped as to actually warp their skeletons. And we can see this in uh, you know in archaeological uh, specimens We can see uh, men from this era with these kind of weird hunched backs and their shoulders in sort of warped uh, forms, and that required regular practice from the uh, very young age and the only way to make that happen is to institute it on a cultural level as a societal thing that we do you know every sunday or whatever further to this on an army level in order to operate a force comprised of several thousand longbowmen who could possibly fire tens of thousands of arrows in a few minutes you need an entire national industry logistical network set up to facilitate that to make arrows that um, there was actually, a, you know, a problem at Agincourt, which was that they didn't have, an, you know, there was, we, we have enough arrows to fire, you know, continuously for five minutes and then that's it, we're going to run out. I mean, you don't often think about that, but there's a similar thing going on with the British naval tradition, meant that Britain, which has 13,000 miles of coastline and you can't be further away than 70 miles from the sea, had a huge stock of capable sailors to to, to, to contribute to a very well-supplied navy. Further to this, the, uh, the 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 flip side of this is that the French Navy was was arguably pretty damaged by the Revolution, which had occurred, you know, in the in the fifteen twenty years previous to this. In theory, the Revolution made the well made the French Army considerably better in a lot of ways, in the ways that I discussed in the first episode. Um, obviously, it, it swelled the numbers massively, and it gave uh, arguably a greater sense of morale, a sense of purpose, a sense of ownership. Uh, within the military within that struggle and on top of this it can be argued that it's a it's a better ideological framework for running everything again as i as i detailed in the first episode it removed aristocracy Um, it removed sort of buying your way into high positions and instead it instituted theoretically a meritocracy in which the best people for the job float to the top and they become the most influential they become the they become those who who get the the most important jobs. It sounds like a much better system than that of commissions, which we discussed in, in the British Army. However, these same benefits, I would argue, perhaps don't translate to the Navy in exactly the same way. On a material level, the advances in manpower, as again I discussed, didn't, don't really work in the Navy because you need the ships. The ships can't just appear out of nowhere, no matter how motivated the populace are. They have to be built, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of money. There was at this time actually um, a trend for French ships and Spanish ships as well to be very full, just to be stuffed with soldiers as much as sailors um, in an attempt to apply the manpower advantage into their ships. Uh, Arguably, this actually caused a disadvantage because it hampered the, the sailing ability of the ships and the ability to operate the guns effectively. More importantly, I think on an ideological level, it causes problems. Uh, firstly, a huge amount of the naval officer corps was exiled, was stripped of of rank or beheaded by the forces of revolution. And that was because of their high birth. Now, now of course, their, their high birth doesn't make them well-suited as fantastic sailors, but they, they, their high birth does make them part of a class that were facilitated to, to learn that vocation of sailing, which is a vocation that takes a long time to become good at. So it's all very well and good in the name of meritocracy to say this person might naturally make a better leader but often, more often than not, actually, it was a reward of political zeal over sailing skill. So you might have the greatest revolutionary in charge of your ship, but it isn't necessarily the best thing. So high-born fops or not, the nobility at this point, were actually those who were often much more competent than the political appointees that that ended up heading uh, the, were parts of the French navy at this point. Uh, on a more fundamental level, on a ship-based level... I can't help but wonder if the principles of liberte egalite fraternite laudable as they were and as they are are particularly useful if you're running a ship as I discussed I think in the in the last episode ships were like a big machine a big single organism and dogmatic discipline is the only thing that really keeps that together and the ancient rights of of the british aristocracy over common sailors unjust and, and unfair as all of that is, works perfectly in that sense. It's that the the machine stops working so well basically if the cogs start asking why should I do it? Or even saying to the, you know, whoever's operating the machine, You do it, you do the cog's job Which within the framework, the ideological framework of the French Revolution was was foregrounded as a possibility at least. So going back to the did the action. I'm going to give a relatively detailed account of actually what happened to the victory as it cut the allied line. Because as I said at the start of the episode, it it plays out in miniature really what happened in many smaller pell-mell engagements throughout the battle. And I think actually if we place ourselves in the cramped, smoke-shrouded gun deck of the victory, we get as clear a picture of the battle as we could from anywhere else. And we we, we, we blind ourselves to the rest of the battle. We wouldn't be able to see what was happening everywhere else. And the true experience of what it was like is, is I think, seen more, more clearly this way. Very quickly, by Nelson's design, as I said, it was chaotic by design for Nelson, becomes this tangled brawl. It defies diagrams. People do diagrams of it, and you can look them up. But, but once the battle actually comes, you can see diagrams of the st- what the ships look like at the start of the battle, but really, the mid part of the battle, you couldn't draw a diagram of, or, or it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be useful, I don't think. At 12.20pm, um, the victory passes between the stern of the Boucantour and the bow of the Tab. Just before the victory struck the enemy line, battered by French shot, Nelson remarked to his flag captain, this is too warm work, Hardy, to last long. Now in an obvious reading of this uh, line, if we could imagine it in the, in the movie, it would be with a sort of grim resolve. But Hardy actually reports that this was said with a smile. And this is exactly what Nelson wanted. This is this is too warm work to last long. He wanted a swift, strategically decisive action. And maybe spiritually, again, as we've discussed about Nelson, a glorious inferno of action in which he could die, in which his good memory could be cemented. Now, the real work of the battle at this point, as much as they have muskets and pistols and so forth, is being done by cannon. Uh, and I think it bears... A little examination of the actual physics of how these things work uh these cannon were were muzzle loaded that means you have to shove the projectile down from the nose uh they're served by up to 12 men under one person again that's in miniature this sort of uh, big machine kind of thing going on there's 12 guys working one gun um the lower down the decks went the heavier the cannons got they were lighter as they went up they're graded by the weight of ammunition they fire. So a 32-pound gun doesn't weigh 32 pounds, obviously. Um, it fires a ball that weighs 32 pounds. That was a very t- a typically heavy gun. That would be the lower deck gun, usually. For context, that's about the weight of a of a cinder block or a medium-sized microwave. Those were the, the things that I could find that weighed 32 pounds. Or, indeed, actually the amount of cheese the average American eats in a year, 32 pounds. Essentially something you'd need two hands to pick up. British ships averaged about one shot every 90 seconds. And there's a whole host of jobs involved in the, in the firing of these guns. There's swabbing, which is basically removing all of the old burning debris from it, because what you're about to do next is charging, which is putting a load of gunpowder down it that you really don't want to be set on fire. Uh, shotting, putting the shot in. Wadding, which is putting in some bits and bobs that stop everything from rolling out. Spiking, which is making a hole in the actual gunpowder bag then hauling the whole gun out so its nose sticks out the side of the ship, and then firing. Every single time they're fired, they shoot back several feet. Um, they're chained to the side of the ship, so they sort of kick back. Um, and on each side of these ships, between you know, 35, 40, 50 of these guns, all hammering away. All So, so, so if you're on one of these gun decks it would be incredibly chaotic and terrifying. And if you're in the way of one of these guns when they come back, there's no sort of health and safety rules that stop that from happening. So it's a serious ballet of of getting this right in a very high-stakes game indeed. The the balls themselves travel at hundreds of metres per second. They fire three main types of shot. You've got round shot, which is just literally a big ball of iron. Chain shot, which were two balls chained together those were designed actually to be fired into rigging so they would kind of spin they would they would go through and and cut ropes and cut uh, uh, spars and things and, and damage sails and then canister shot which is essentially like a big shotgun so it's a load of musket balls in a bag in front of the charge that then sort of sprays out and that's designed for killing the crew of the enemy ship rather than trying to sink the ship the british approach as i said the french and the spanish approach actually was to fire into the rigging of ships to try and disable them which is more humane in some senses, the British approach was just to fire into the hull of the enemy ship, to hole it below the waterline, so to shoot really low, try and hit, make holes below the waterline, to kill the crew, to dismount the guns, to cause complete chaos on the ships. You have to imagine what happens when a 30-tap-2-pound ball of iron travelling at, let's say, 400 metres per second hits two feet of oak. What happens then is what's called splinters. I've mentioned these a few times before. A splinter knocked off Captain Hardy's buckle off his shoe. When we say splinters, that's really a misnomer because it it, it means a, a kind of spear of wood, possibly as you know, inches to a couple of feet in length. Massive slivers of very sharp oak flying around um, and kind of shredding everything inside ships. This is happening is all happening during the Scientific Revolution. This 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 battle and this whole era. This is not a time, however, of ballistic gel and slow-motion cameras, computers measuring everything. So there's kind of a degree of kind of back of the handkerchief science around this, an experiment of launching things and seeing what happens. Uh, this was how, well, it's what this guy called Sir Howard Douglas said uh, in his treaty of, Treatise of Naval Gunnery. He said, quote, The prodigious ravages occasioned by splinters in naval actions are such that we should study as much as possible, consistently with other views, to reap the fullest effect from so destructive an agent. And this depends very much upon the degree of velocity with which the balls penetrate. That velocity which can but just penetrate will occasion the greatest shake and tear off the greatest number of and the largest splinters, for the parts struck by a solid shot moving with great velocity are driven out before they communicate emotion, to the circumjacent parts of the substance. End quote. Now, to translate that—that that he, what he's basically saying is the the, the fact that that um, cannonballs hitting wood produces splinters isn't sh- well is a side effect, is a byproduct. But this is very typical of the British Empire's approach to things, I think, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a minute. Is that they go, oh, hold on, wait—the the fact that we produce these splinters should itself be the goal because they're the. That we need to reap the fullest effect from so destructive an agent. We go, oh whoopsie, we've just created all of these flying spears of wood. Let's work out the, the precise speed at which a cannonball needs to hit two feet of oak in order to produce the biggest, the most horrible splinters and kill as many people in, inside uh, as possible. The British approach was to do what's called aiming between wind and water at the waterline. Now that's also where the ship is packed full of people. Nelson was, was cutting the, the French line, as I said, between the, the, the Boucontour and the Redoutable, and he's at, not at, you know, several hundred yards distance, as the French and Spanish have been firing on them, but at a few yards distance. He was incredibly close, and he was going to make this first kind of volley count. He, however, had calculated that his shot would be going too fast. As we spoke about uh, just now, with as, as Howard Douglas said in treatise of Gunnery, if the ball is going too quickly, it basically just whips straight through the ship. It goes through the, both sides of oak, and if it hits the ball itself hits somebody going through, then it, it'll kill them, but it doesn't produce this horrible splintering effect. So Nelson triple shots his cannon. That means he puts three cannonballs into each of his cannon. That means each one is firing 96 pounds of cannonball. And that actually isn't to... Create more projectile to create more cannonball. That's to m- slow the cannonballs down, slowing them down enough that they will create these massive holes. They'll make basically a really messy wound in the side of the ships. That they'll they'll create these holes that more water will come in through. But more importantly, they'll create these spears, these these splinters. They fire this way into the the redutab with fully depressed guns. That means that guns are aiming downwards as much as possible. They're going to shoot down through the hull and possibly down through the bottom of the hull into the water beneath. And that has the joint effect of basically pushing crews from the guns to start pumping water out that's now going to be streaming in and, and might eventually sink her. As the French uh, the French journal, uh, journal uh, Le Montier uh, puts it, quote, when a fear of sinking is induced, men are not much disposed to contend for victory, end quote. This attitude towards gunnery, this attitude, rather, kind of cold attitude towards making things work in the absolute best way, I think, is typical of of, of the British Empire um, and the British Empire's success. And I think this runs almost totally contrary to a lot of our ideas of what the British Empire was, and a lot of the rather unhelpful jingoistic sort of ideas of what made it possible and what made it, you know, what 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 made it great, I suppose, in in quotation marks. Um, and that's that we often view it with an idea that it was made possible by sort of british exceptionalism and by something rather ineffable something intangible something like grit and steel or even values of civilization or or any of those things more the more i study history and the more i study the history of the british empire the more it becomes clear that it's things like this i mean this is a miniature version of it but it's things like this it's things like that in fact it's nothing romantic at all it's that The British approach to particularly military matters was to do things like work out the exact speed at which a cannonball has to be hitting a ship in order to kill the most people. And indeed, as I mentioned in the last episode, the exact degree of sort of traumatic carrot and stick game you need to play with your officer class and the exact degree of chemical dependency you need to inculcate in your sailors and the, the exact angle of fire you need to achieve to start sinking the ship so that enough of the sailors get away from the guns, so you win the battle. Now, I'm sure we'll come up against this in, in later series, hopefully, um, but there's nothing romantic about that at all. It's, it's, uh, it's very cold and very calculated. Now, the victory uh, at this point had yet yeah, been unable to answer enemy fire for what must have seemed like absolutely hours. It opens fire with its full broadsides down the length of both the Red Utarbe and the Book on tour the, the French flagship, raking it from, from the stern, from the rear. The first gun to fire, just as a, as a case study, is a carronade, which is a big, huge gun that sits on the upper deck, sort of foreshortened one, uh, with a 68-pound ball and a canister of 500 musket balls, and it shoots down onto the packed decks uh, of the Bucontour, and this is followed by 50 more guns this mangles the ship, the Buc-on-tour, From really it's claimed afterwards that this single broadside had killed 400 men that's probably an exaggeration, that would be about half of the Bucontor's crew the Boucantour, after this point however does not contribute much to the battle it's had probably over 100 casualties already and at least 20 of its gun knocked out, the victory however has only just begun its fight. Uh, Hardy pulls her up alongside the Redutab, which is the, the, the other ship that it was squeezing past. This ship is captained by a guy called Lucas. Lucas had prepared his ship for boarding, hand-to-hand fighting, and both of the, the, the ships, the, the, the ship sails, Victory, and, and the Redutab's sails became entangled. They became locked together, and ultimately that would last for really the rest of the battle. Again, this, it's kind of Nelson's idea is that things like this happen, messy things like this happen and ultimately the, the superior fighting quality of the British will, will win over. There was already so much smoke that midshipman James Walker of the Victory couldn't even see the enemy ship. He comments, quote, Captain Adair, applying his mouth to my ear, bawled into it. Are they going to board us? I replied, who, who are going to board us? Why this ship in contact with us on the starboard bow? We, of course, put our 68-pounder into immediate requisition, most effectively, but so incessant was the small arms fire of the enemy that most of the marines who came on the forecastle fell like corn before the sickle, end quote. What he's describing here is the, a big British carronade sweeping the totally exposed French deck, but then the reportedly 200 French marksmen in the rigging of the Redoutar. Like I said, these ships, were, the French ships particularly were packed with soldiers, and that advantage is coming into play now clears the deck of the victory. And what settles in now is a horrific close quarters battle. Both of these ships are lying alongside each other, trying to destroy the other before it can be destroyed. The guns of both ships, it's reported, couldn't even be run all the way out because they knocked up against the other ship's hull, so literally being fired point blank. Uh, Grenades were scattered onto the decks of both ships. Early grenades are sort of, you know, black balls of, of gunpowder with a with a fuse sticking out sort of cartoon bomb looking things uh, sailors firing muskets from a couple of meters away at the crews who were reloading the guns just opposite them uh, grabbing even rammers and hand spikes and things out of each other's hands in order to slow down the enemy gun loading team that would have been a i can imagine an absolutely horribly tense sort of race to reload your gun and knock the other team out the smoke was so thick uh, in these confined spaces the crews were were essentially loading and firing completely blind just loading and firing as quickly as they could no idea what they're shooting at lieutenant louise uh, Ropeley reports quote, a man should witness a battle in a three-decker from the middle deck for it beggars all description it bewilders the senses of sight and hearing there was the fire from above the fire from below besides the fire from the deck i was upon the guns recoiling with violent reports louder than thunder the deck heaving the sides straining I fancied myself in the infernal regions, where every man appeared a devil. The decks of both ships would be horribly dangerous places to be, and Rotely reports that, quote, Captain Adair's party was reduced to less than ten men, himself wounded and forehead by splinters, yet still using his musket to effect. One of his last orders to me was, Rotely, fire away as fast as you can, when a ball struck him on the back of the neck, and he was a corpse in a moment, end quote. At this moment, with both decks being swept of all life, it was still the commanding officer's job to stand just casually on the quarterdeck. Nelson was standing conspicuously on the quarterdeck of the victory when a sharpshooter in the mizzen top of the Red that's a platform maybe 30 or 40 feet or so above the deck, uh, spotted these two figures, Hardy and Nelson, covered in lace and medals, uh, and he fired off a single shot. And Nelson was struck through his left shoulder. The musket ball severed an artery, shattered his spine, and lodged somewhere under his left shoulder blade. He said to Hardy, They have done for me at last. We'll take up with Dr. Beatty's account here. Dr. Beatty was the surgeon on the victory. He says, Captain Hardy ordered the seamen to carry the admiral down to the cockpit, and now two incidents occurred strikingly characteristic of this great man. While the men were carrying him down from the middle deck, his lordship observed that the tiller ropes were not yet replaced, and desired one of the midshipmen request that new ones should be immediately rove. Having delivered this order, he took his handkerchief from his pocket and covered his face with it, that he might be conveyed to the cockpit at this crisis unnoticed by the crew. End quote. Now that is, it seems almost untenable, but I I I think actually a a rather accurate detail, totally plausible, uh, that Nelson had become such an Icon of the fleet and of the the perceived uh, sort of ascendancy of the fleet. Um, that if it was seen that he was you know merely mortal and that he was uh, on his way to death, panic would spread and that that would be the beginning of the end. Now, as we've um already just detailed the the well the mortal wounding of Nelson, bit of a spoiler there. Um, I thought it's only fair that we don't, we're do not we not too elitist and that we do give, you know, personal accounts, as I said at the beginning of this episode, of how this battle was going for, for individuals, because we do have a huge number of these accounts. The words of one seaman uh, aboard the Royal Sovereign, so that's uh, Admiral Collingwood's ship, so I had this to say on his sort of outlook on the battle. Quote, To tell you the truth of it, when the game began, I wished myself at Warnborough with my plough again. But when they had given us one duster, I bid fear kiss my bottom and set to in good earnest and thought no more about being killed than if I were at Marl Green Fair. How my fingers got knocked overboard, I don't know, but off they are, and I never missed them till I wanted them. You see by my writing this that it is my left hand, so I can write to you and fight for my king yet. End quote. Again, we've got more of those kind of euphemisms, having his fingers knocked overboard. Uh, an officer on the Belisle remarked on the intensity of the combat. Quote, At every moment the smoke accumulated more and more thickly, stagnating on board between the decks, at times so densely as to blur over the nearest objects and blot out the men at the guns. They had to be trained, as it were, mechanically, by means of orders passed from above, and on objects that the men had hardly a glimpse of. The men were as much in the dark as if they had been blindfolded, and the only comfort to be derived from this was that every man was so isolated from his neighbour that he was not put in mind of his danger by seeing his messmates go down all around him. All that he knew was that he heard the crash of shot smashing through the timbers and then followed at once by the hoarse bellowings of the captains of the guns. Close up there. End quote. And this was similarly uh, horrific on, on, on the other side of things. We have uh, an, an account from a French lieutenant, uh, Pierre Philibert. Quote, we collided with the Tonant by driving our bowsprit into its mainmast shrouds. They then fired several volleys of canister shot at us, which totally carried away our rigging. Our well-sustained fire soon reduced it to the same state as ourselves, end quote. He details then a, a boarding party, quote, Advancing enthusiastically, although supported by a vigorous musketry fire, almost all fell victim to their valour and daring because at this moment poured into us a volley from the carronades on his upper works, end quote. And then once the captain of that ship and most of its crew were dead, quote, We then brought together all of our forces in the 36-pounder battery, which continued to be employed on both sides with the same vigour. The Tarnants set fire to our bosun's storeroom with burning wads impregnated with sulphur. And this account from, from Philibert, I think, aboard, aboard a French ship, which is essentially just being whittled down stage by stage, uh, gives us a sense of these these kind of running individual battles that are occurring. Uh, he, he starts off his account by talking about the two ships coming together and essentially immediately completely destroying one another's rigging. So they have no way of, of then moving. So they're locked together. Then of attempting... To board the other, and just because a big cannon that happens to be you know loaded at the right time, it can knock out twenty or thirty men. Then essentially everybody hiding below decks, because the the, the below decks at least you're you're covered from above, and you've got some kind of walls to hide behind, and essentially just carrying on until there's nobody left. Which, as we'll go on to the detail later, is testament to the to the fact that the French and the Spanish uh, sailors and crews of these ships were by no means. Uh, kind of lacklustre or cowardly. Uh, midshipman William Robinson, um, and we've heard a bit from him before and we get a lot of accounts from midshipmen because they are, basically, they're just the youngest officers. They're, they're as young as 12, but often up to, to their mid-20s um, and therefore they're all educated and there's loads of them and they're scattered absolutely all over the place. Robinson describes the chaotic nature of the battle with this, uh, well, a pretty turn of phrase. Uh, quote, We were closely engaged throughout the battle, and the shots were playing their pranks pretty freely, grape as well as canister, with single and double-headed thunderers all joining in the frolic. What was termed a slaughtering one came in at the lower deck ports, which wounded or killed nearly all the gun, and amongst them a very merry little fellow who was the very life of the ship's company. He was the ship's cobbler, and with all a very good dancer, so that when any of his messmates would serve us out a tune, he was sure to trip it on a light fantastic toe and find a step to it. He happened to be stationed at the gun where this messenger of death entered, and the poor fellow was stunned by the head of another knocked against his that no one doubted he was dead. As it was customary to throw overboard those who in engagement are killed outright, the poor cobbler amongst the rest was taken to the porthole to be committed to the deep. Just as they were about to let him slip from their hands, the blood began to circulate and he commenced kicking. When he was afterwards joked about it, he would say, "'It was well that I learned to dance,' For if I had not shown you some of my steps, I should not be here now, but safe enough in Davy Jones' locker, End quote. So as I hope you get the sense of from these individual accounts, I think because of the, essentially the kind of blindness of this battle, that the, the amount of smoke generated and the close quarters of what's going on, mean that the whole thing seems to take place in a series of, of tiny vignettes that really nobody in this battle has a clear view of everything that's going on. And, and, and I think that gives it quite a unique character. Now, as Beattie said, Nelson would be heading down towards the cockpit. That was the place where, where surgery happened amidst uh, the chaos of battle. And we do have some, some well, rather unpleasant eyewitness accounts of this as well. Um, an eyewitness uh, on the Orlop deck of the Tonant, where Forbes Chevet, the surgeon, who was quite a famous sh- surgeon, was at work. Quote, it may well be imagined that with 26 killed and 50 wounded, Chevet had hot work in the cockpit. The place was utterly dark, half of its depth being below the waterline. He did all of his amputations by the light of tallow candles, held torch-like by two assistants. A consequence was, when he washed his face, he found that his eyebrows had been burnt off. Excellent aid was also given by a very powerful and resolute woman. She carried the sailors who had been operated upon to their temporary berths, taking them up in her arms as if they had been children." End quote. It's worth actually mentioning at this point, we we will come on to mention an account of another woman at this battle. And there were, we simply can't know how many women, broadly speaking, that there weren't supposed to be women aboard these ships in any sort of permanent uh, capacity, but evidently there were. And they served in all sorts of uh, different uh, respects. We sadly just don't see them in the official record and very rarely in the written record, though they do pop up at at times like this. Furthermore, a Frenchman on the Pluton says, quote, I had received three wounds. One to the left eye, which I believed I would lose, one to the left hand, which would be the longest to heal, and that which caused me the greatest pain, the blow I received on my chest. After that, when I was laid out on a mattress, I was again wounded in the head in two places by splinters thrown up by a cannonball as it passed through the Orlop deck, and that afterwards a dozen wounded men fell on my body and made me suffer considerably. End quote. So we really do need to remember, I think the incredible thing about that that account is evidently this man survived, and that the unlike a, a battlefield hospital in either a modern battle or really uh, land battles throughout time there isn't a rear there isn't a place where you can be taken out by stretcher bearers you you get taken basically just to the to the basement of the ship under the water line and as he said there's still cannonballs coming through the the essentially the operating theater where he's trying to recover now we've already discussed uh, the incentives that have driven all of these people to wind up here, you know, money and punishment and rum and all of those things that have brought them to this battle. But those are not the things I don't think that incentivize these men to continue fighting within these battles. And I think we can gain a lot by looking at the incentives, acting on these people, actually second to second within this action. Now, from those accounts, despite all of the sort of uh, stiff upper lip, uh, jolly good humour, and some of the, the euphemistic language used in the accounts, we can see there's obviously a pretty obvious psychological angle to all of this, and some of them can be quite psychologically revealing. As I discussed, I think, last time regarding Villeneuve's uh, psychology, I think we can apply some of what we know today about, about uh, trauma that soldiers go through and, and PTSD and so forth. And there's definitely an awareness uh, from these accounts that that what was being demanded of the men was beyond the limit of what humans can deal with essentially unmedicated. Uh, William Robinson recalls, orders were now given to fetch the dead bodies from the after cockpit and throw them overboard. These were the bodies of men who were taken down to the cockpit during the battle, badly wounded, and who by the time the engagement was ended were dead. The next call was all hands to splice the main brace, which is the giving out of a gill of rum to each man, and indeed they much needed it. End quote. And that honestly, that's about as close as we get to anyone admitting, well, I mean, that actually, there are some rather touching tributes later on, but essentially admitting that they are deeply traumatized and they're going to need some essentially some chemical numbing to get through it. There's also a real sense that that um, the closeness of the ships operates rather to kind of magnify the psychological damage of of what's happening, the closeness, I mean, th- throughout their service, of the people that, that are living amongst each other day in, day out. I mean, it occurred to me, it's essentially, it's like going into, into battle in your own house with your housemates, with your best friends. Marine Lieutenant Paul Nicholas of the Belial, he was talking about the cockpit, which is which is essentially the, usually the midshipman's berth, but as I've said, becomes uh, the surgery. Quote, piercing shrieks and expiring groans were echoed through this vault of misery and even at this distant period the heart-sickening picture is always alive in my memory what a contrast to the hilarity and enthusiastic mirth which reigned in this spot the preceding evening end quote and he goes on quote there sat a melancholy on the brows of some who mourned a messmate who had shared their perils and their vicissitudes for many years then the merits of the departed heroes were repeated with a sigh but their errors sunk with them into the deep end quote so from that, there's, I mean, there's really serious trauma uh, being undergone here. And from all of those accounts that we've seen, this was obviously a really awful place to be, either if you're on deck or if you're below deck or, or if you're in the surgery or whatever. This is a horrible place to be. So to look at it from a, a psychological angle, what was it that pushed people to sustain themselves and to continue operating with any degree of efficiency in these situations, which personally I can't imagine sustaining? In a land engagement battle whatever or just a fight whatever it's it's, i think it's easier to see how parrying a sword thrust or shooting the guy who's trying to shoot you is pretty obviously incentivized by by an instinct for for self-preservation and i imagine a lot of the energy and the clarity of action that those things require is driven by that quite straightforward desire not to die as well as i'm sure a mix of, of higher values involved this is much harder to see directly, I think for 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 most crew in a naval battle, because what incentivizes the powder boy whose only duty is carrying literal explosives, or the able seaman who is up the rigging, you know even during the absolute heat of the fight climbing around, exposed amongst a load of ropes, or even the admiral whose main job as we'll you know we've seen is is just to stand on the exposed quarter deck and to look unflustered. What's to stop them from just curling up into a ball and making themselves as small as possible and waiting until it's over? Giving in to those entirely understandable, rational, powerful feelings of self-preservation. Now, as I said in the, in the last episode, we can see that the ship as this, this kind of organic machine in which the crew are just cogs and the grease and everything that keep the machine running. In the high stress of battle, I can only imagine that it is very difficult to keep each part of that machine, whose individual, incredibly specific job, cannot well often can't be obviously seen to connect to its immediate survival, to keep them working, they do, and this suggests a very powerful, complex social contract that is is at work, um, and is a lovely vindication, I think, of the the obvious but the easily forgotten truism that people in the past weren't stupid, they weren't base. Um, you see a ship that is working well, that is making good speed, that is firing quickly, that is organized, is safer for everyone, and the the casualty rates are going to be lower on it. The well-being of the ship is the well-being of the individual. And I think the the, the individual cogs on that ship would know that on some level. If the powder boy doesn't keep the guns charged, perhaps an enemy cannon will not be disabled and will fire and kill the man in the rigging. And if the man in the rigging doesn't ignore the flying iron around him and trim his sails just so perhaps the ship will lose half a knot and that means the ship's going to be boarded and that means the powder boy is going to get stabbed in the head with a cutlass. So each individual is is just as directly incentivised to do their job as if they were stabbing somebody who's about to stab them. It's just there's sort of, I suppose, several steps in between those things. They pay into a sort of communal safety of the whole system and therefore their own chances of survival. And significantly, actually, the Admiral, standing on the quarterdeck, trying not to look ruffled, as much as that seems outmoded and absurd, is actually probably the most important part of that system. Because in that symbolic gesture, you know, discarding any concerns for his personal well-being, he's essentially saying, this is how we all need to do our jobs. He's he's setting the, the rules by which the whole system will work. We all need to pretend we're not in a dangerous situation and get on with it this dynamic is key to our understanding of the romanticization you know of our cultural response to this period and to military history more generally if you if you think of the paintings of this time of trafalgar they will actually usually or the most successful ones display the ships crew struggling at their work you know or or rushing to aid their fallen comrades and in more modern cinema similarly Think of the tone that film tends to take on the actual military engagements. The kind of romantic, glorious swell of music comes as whatever soldiers courageously knuckle down to their work despite the terrible havoc around them. In uh, in Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, is a good example, obviously it's not historical, but it's similar in terms of our, our attitudes towards these things. The kind of gut-wrenching, tear-jerking, stuff is the people hurrying to their stations or holding their fallen comrades or the the riders of Rohan streaming down the hill in a hopeless charge these things are they are they are set up specifically as the object of our 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 admiration and I think they are the things that we come to romanticize and lionize the actual collision if you literally if you go and watch that scene the actual moment where the the riders of Rohan I know this seems completely puerile but when they collide with the orcs that moment of violence is actually accompanied by a complete cut in the music the camera switches from these kind of grand panning shots to close to to, to close-ups of 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 really quick whippy action whipping blurred shots back and forth and we're being told to view the actual violence as a subject for sort of sober consideration and to think this is this is just horrific it's the gritty bit but it's actually the peripheral elements, the elements of cooperation, of collective endeavour, that are being held up for admiration. And I think these, the, you know, these, uh, I suppose I'm talking about films because films kind of are statues in a sense, in the way that we're talking about them. When's the last time you saw a statue of somebody actually stabbing somebody else? Which is the business of what a lot of this military stuff is, isn't it? Ultimately, or shooting somebody. They, we don't make statues of those things. On Nelson's column and in the freezers around it, men are, you know, they're working the ship. There are sailors hauling on a rope to raise a, fr- uh, to, to raise a broken spar. Uh, it's collective endeavour. That's what's being focused on. Nelson could be up there at the top stabbing or shooting somebody, as he did lots of times. But instead, he's calmly staring into the distance, isn't he? That, In fact, that was his job. That was his part of the collective duty. And I can see why people of this era... Um, it's a Prussian school of thought actually that that slightly predates this, felt that war was objectively good. That there it's not just good for keeping your country safe or securing lands or goods or whatever, but it's objectively good for its own sake. A theory went that it brought about kind of higher human values, that it that it it brought people to a higher pitch of quality as humans. And I'm not defending that line of thinking at all because it's well, as we'll see in this episode, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's utterly horrible and it doesn't bring out great things. Um, but even today in the movies we watch and the statues we're surrounded by, that line of thinking is essentially being uh, constantly underlined. It's what we're being con- constantly subconsciously exposed to. That despite the sections with the quick whippy action shots and, oh God, that's horrible and there's blood everywhere, we're actually being exposed to the idea that these things fundamentally are worthy of great panning shots and swelling, you know, orchestral scores. So to go back quickly to the idea I introduced at the beginning of episode two, actually, that that like an ocean-going container ship, as compared to a sailing ship of the 19th century, our lives are... Incomparably more insulated from instances that are this intense in our lives, and it removes a lot of the awful things that might happen to us. But to follow the reasoning of those, the Prussians of the 18th century, maybe that, well, that also removes some of the potential for these higher moments. You know, that because we're insulated, we don't end up in these moments where we, we are worthy of being accompanied by a swelling musical score, and we get to all collectively, you know, pull on a rope or cradle our, our dying comrades in our arms. To put it frankly, none of us will ever be part of an 800-person crew working a ship and its guns in a battle for our lives, for better or for worse. And I'm deeply thankful for that. I don't for a minute think that's a, that's a crying shame that's not going to happen. But I think we can see ways that we've, see, we've sought to replace those things in our modern lives. Sports are a really good example. Why do you think football is more popular than tennis? I'm sure there's lots of ideas about why that is. I think on some level it's because we are vicariously kind of part of that symbiosis of 11 people striving towards a goal through which the individuals will become a greater, a greater team than the sum of their parts. And maybe the tens of thousands you know, screaming fans are also li- literally a part of that process, lending their screaming encouragement, bending their effort to the accomplishment of that shared goal. I suppose the question we have to ask ourselves is, do monuments like Nelson's Column enshrine those qualities of collective endeavor and so forth which i believe are objectively on their own worthy of of admiration and also by connection do they also glorify the brutish acts of violence the tyrannical systems that they're named after I'd, I'd hope that by understanding the events themselves a bit better it is possible that they can glorify one and not the other but the question we have to ask ourselves is do they i'm not i'm not entirely convinced they do now, when Nelson arrives in the cockpit uh, of the Victory, the low, you know, sort of surgeon's den below the waterline, Beatty, who's the ship's surgeon, sees that there is nothing left that can be done for him. Back on deck, midshipman John Pollard, who is the only surviving officer on the poop deck, already injured with a splinter in his arm, supposedly sets to work to avenge Nelson's death. He fires a musket at three Frenchmen that he can see in the top, whilst a, a quartermaster, a man called Mr King, reloads the muskets for him. King is killed just as he hands a loaded final musket to Pollard, who uses it to bring down the last of the three Frenchmen. And he claims that one of them must have been the man to kill Nelson. However, this honour is also claimed by one of the marine officers of the victory, and also several French accounts were later published by men claiming to be the one to have fired the shot and survived. So we will almost certainly never know the truth of that one. As this is happening, Lucas on the Red decides to use his superior numbers to board the victory and his men begin to assemble with cutlasses and pikes and axes and pistols and all sorts and the victory is vulnerable because her top deck is completely cleared the french marksmen in the uh, in the in the in the french rigging have just cl- swept the deck clean and the french can begin to assemble to swarm over the top to trap the british sailors on the decks below hardy who's now the commanding officer of the victory and therefore the fleet until Collingwood can be told what's happened to Nelson is in a horrible situation he has to simultaneously handle fighting off Lucas fighting off the other two ships the victory has been engaged with this whole time on her port side and then looking after the rest of the fleet and all of this whilst he is I imagine desperate to go and check on his friend who's dying somewhere in the guts of the victory. Now Captain Lucas of the uh, Red Utab who I've mentioned a couple of times is quite an interesting character and he's one that I wish I had more time to give a bit of a biography of um, but he's a as I suppose feature in this story a few times he's a he's a small and intense figure um, I think he's actually the smallest of the figures we have out of Nelson Napoleon and Lucas and um, and he's a kind of intense, furious little man um, as as all of his crew recount, but they they're rather fiercely loyal to him. but he recalls this moment when he, he plans to board the victory quote Preceded by drums and fifes, I paraded at the head of my officers round the decks everywhere I found gallant lads burning with impatience to get at the enemy end quote." And he then he then grabbed uh, the imperial eagle, which was, you know, planted on the on the deck of every French ship. And he said, quote, my friends, I'm going to throw this aboard the English ship. We will go and fetch it back or we will die. Quote. The royal sovereign and the victory at the heads of their respective columns have now been engaged against multiple ships for some time. And just in the nick of time before the victory, the British flagship can be overwhelmed. The next ships in the column start to arrive. The Belisle, the Mars, the Temeraire, the Bellerophon all come up in support. And the Temeraire pulls up on the other side of the Redoutable, now sandwiching with the Victory and places Lucas and the Redoutable in doomed position. Both the Victory and the Temeraire have to reduce the charges in their cannon, fearing of shooting right through the Redoutable into their compatriots on the other side. They begin to basically just hammer it from both sides with more experienced gun crews outpacing their French counterparts. Across the whole line, The battle's now broken down into 15 or 20 similar brutal duels. It's just the same thing, acting out with different ships, different ship names. That's why it's not really worth worth following them all. But the royal sovereign, the Santa Anna, pair off the Tonant and the Algeciras, pair off the Bellerophon and the Aigle. I won't give you an account of all of these because they all happen in the same way. And this is just as Nelson had planned. As I said, it's not a battle that can be narrated. It's a brawl. The first British ships into the Allied line had taken a really horrible beating and they're mangled beyond recognition, but they have given as good as they got, or better than they got, really, um, and each additional British ship is, just, is fresh and is basically just beginning to tilt the scales and to overwhelm the French and the Spanish ability to deal with them. There are a few little vignettes from this chaos that I think tell the story more clearly than an overall view would. At one point, the Bellerophon's flag was shot away, for several minutes, the French assumed she had surrendered. She was striking the flag. But in midshipman John Franklin recounts Beatty, seeing the ensign shot away a third time, mounted the mizzen rigging with the largest Union Jack he could lay his hands upon, stopped the four corners of it with as much spread as possible, and regained the deck unhurt. The French riflemen, seemingly in admiration, suspended their fire for the few seconds that he remained aloft. End quote. Gun crews were firing ships, as I said, that were just a few feet away from them, and they were actually emptying buckets of water after their shots to put out fires on the enemy ship, because a fire on the enemy ship would inevitably spread to your own and would spell the death of both of you. So these weird situations where you're trying to kill the guy, but then saying, sorry, here's a bucket of water over your head. Midshipmen Collingwood um, and Ogilvie actually took a a, a boat around to the stern of the Ready Tarb, where they had noticed fire breaking out an enemy ship and they basically jumped out they thought we got to put this out otherwise it's going to spread and kill everyone and they jump aboard to find the frenchmen are already there however rather than shooting one another the frenchmen welcome them aboard and they work together to beat out the fire and collingwood and ogilvy then find actually their their little boat has just drifted away so they basically just become guests of the french for the remainder of the battle there's a curiously named sailor called Jack Sprat in, uh, in the British ship, the Defiance. He's said to be the most handsome man in the Navy. I don't know who named him that, probably himself, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that. The most handsome man in the British Navy, Jack Spratt. He taught the rest of the crew to fight with swords and their fists, he said, uh, quote, intermingling with it a little of my country's shalala. He was a, uh, an Irishman. He was so good at doing this that, quote, my captain, Sir Philip H. Durham, ordered up the boarders and told them that he was sure Mr Sprat would lead them to glory. The men gave three cheers and I made a low bow and returned to my fighting quarter. End quote. Now soon after this order had been given, the defiance, Sprat's ship, came into combat with the French laigle uh, which Jack reckoned had been pretty well shot up and needed to be boarded. Quote both ships' boats being shot through and rendered useless, I asked my captain to leave to board by swimming, as well as I knew that 50 or 60 of the boarders who I had taught could swim like sharks. This request he received with astonishment, but finally consented, so I gave the word. You, my brave fellows who can swim, follow me. I plunged overboard with my cutlass between my teeth and my tomahawk under my belt. End quote. So Jack Spratt, having taught all the men of his ship to fight and to swim like handsome Irishmen, uh, he dives overboard and he swims to the Laigle and he climbs up by its rudder chain. He goes on, quote, my men in loud clamor of a general engagement, not hearing what I said, did not follow. End quote. And um, if I'm honest, Jack, I suspect they did hear you and they decided that it was not worth following. He carries on, quote, so I fought my way under God's guidance through a host of gallant French through all her decks until I got on her poop. I now showed myself to her crew and gave them a cheer with my hat on the point of my cutlass. I was that moment attacked by three grenadiers with fixed bayonets and by the assistance of a rope, I sprung over their heads and disabled two of them before they could act against me. The third man I grappled by the collar and forced over the break of the poop and broke his neck. I got off better by falling on his body." End quote. And by this time, some of his mates have uh, decided to swim over and try and give him a hand. He spots a French officer who he had already had a good fight with um, and he admired uh, begging for mercy and shielded him from his English captors with his own body. He then says, quote, I had scarcely performed this piece of service and was in an act of rising up when a grenadier with a fixed bayonet thought to run me through, but I parried his thrust with my blade. He then retired a little, levelling his piece at my breast, which I struck downwards with my trusty old friend the cutlass, so that the ball, which would otherwise have passed through my body, shattered the bone of my right leg, end quote. He then basically hopped around with a shattered right leg fighting another three frenchmen for a while until the ship surrendered quote, at this time i presented myself on the captured ship's quarter deck and her boats being shot away i swung myself to our ship by one of her boat tackles and landed on a lower deck port saturated with blood and salt water and was drawn into the port End quote. and he was eventually taken to the surgeons who insisted on amputating his leg which he then refused claiming that he would uh, never find a match for the first one and then Jack sat in, in a hospital in Gibraltar for a really long time. And he recounts his nurse uh, catching on fire after apparently putting a lit pipe in her pocket. He then says, quote, By the great skill and superior management of our good surgeon, my leg was saved. And although nearly three inches shorter than the other, it is much better than an artificial one. End quote. And that might say an absurdly long story, really, to, to recount Uh, in a podcast like this which already already has too much material but I do think it's worth recounting these stories of basically just the British and Spanish and French and whatever you know the ordinary sailors who are who are fighting their own tiny individual fights and all of these kind of bizarre stories spring out of it and really stranger than fiction now the French and Spanish although you know as had been portrayed and as were assumed by the British command before the battle were by no means incompetent or cowardly they fought a a really brutally hard battle, they didn't give up easily. The Aegler, for example, took 270 casualties. Uh, it repelled a boarding attempt, it received a 20 minute cannonade from several British ships and got set on fire eventually before surrendering. Uh, Lucas and the Redoutab illustrate the ferocity of the fight perfectly. The Temeraire and the victory with the Redoutab sandwiched between them are locked together. The Fougot, another French ship, very nearly joins into this scrum. Most of the ships are just floating boxes, really, by this point. Their masts have been shot away, their, their wheels and rudders have been shot away. They're just a big a box floating around, basically often tied in with each other. And there was this widely believed, I think now debunked idea that large ships actually attracted one another in high seas, that they essentially kind of magnetized towards each other. Um, in any case, the Fugo is, is basically bobbing towards the Temeraire into a fight that neither of the ship wants or can handle. The Temeraire's starboard guns are all loaded and ready and the Fugo presents its bows and its crew are bunched on deck and they're prepared for boarding. The Temeraire opens fire and just obliterates it, completely sweeps the deck, topples two of the masts. And it's little, rather contingent moments like this that the Temeraire happen to have loaded guns ready to fire at that particular moment that then just knock out the ship like that at such close quarters. Again, showing how Nelson's idea of this decisive battle at incredibly close quarters is, is kind of panning out as he was planning. So after the withering fire of these two ships on either side of it, the Redutab eventually has to surrender. And it's a rather poetic, uh, romantic and, and sad sort of last stand story. Uh, Captain Lucas reports, quote, The Temeraire hailed us to surrender and not prolong a hopeless resistance. My reply was to order some soldiers near me to fire back, which they promptly did. The broadsides of the victory and the Temeraire had either smashed or dismounted all our guns. In addition, an 18-pounder on the lower deck and a 32-pounder carronade on the forecastle had burst, killing or wounding a great many men. The hull was riddled, shot through from side to side, deck beams were shattered and port lids torn away. The decks were everywhere strewn with dead men. Out of a crew of 643 men, we had 522 order combat, but that means out of action. Of these, 300 were killed and 222 wounded, nearly all of the officers among them. I know of nothing on board that had not been hit by shot in the midst of this horrible carnage and devastation, my splendid fellows who had not been killed, even the wounded below on the Orlop, kept cheering, vive l'Empereur, we are not taken yet, end quote. And eventually he does have to surrender, but but there is, the British ships are basically desperately asking him to surrender, and so long as he carries on firing back, the British are kind of obligated to continue firing on them. They kind of don't want to, either for humanitarian reasons of not wanting to just pointlessly slaughter all of these French sailors, but also because the the ship itself was a potentially very valuable prize for the nation, for the war effort, but also for the crews and the the, the officers of those ships that captured them. But there is this sort of demand of honour that Lucas obviously feels probably more strongly than the rest um, of the captains present to continue fighting until the very, very last man, to the very last drop of blood. Now, oddly, from the start of the battle, Neither Admiral, really, Nelson or Villeneuve, has done anything. Nelson, you know, because he was shot, basically, straight away, and Villeneuve, because his, his ship was so badly mauled that he really couldn't he couldn't exert his will at all on what was going on. This plays to Nelson's plan, though. Again, his, he gave so many details to his captains, he told them what the plan was, that they could get stuck in however they needed to. Villeneuve, on the other hand, is just stuck on board the Boucantour Ever since the victory's first broadside... It's been out of action, and each ship that goes past it seems to kind of just send a broadside into it, give it a kick as they pass, on their way to to fresher prey. He wanted to transfer his flag to another ship, but all of his smaller boats have been destroyed, and really everyone's too busy to help him. Everyone's tangled up with their own their own little fight, and the tr- destruction he sees around him is is a validation of all of his worries, all of his misgivings, as we as we detailed in the last episode. Ever since the Nile, ever since he sailed back in January, since then he's, he's been kind of haunted by this ghost of Nelson and everything he sees or around him must have just vindicated that fear, that desperate desire just to avoid a battle entirely. As I detailed earlier, the French outnumber the British. Actually, only about half of Nelson's fleet really even gets stuck in. It's, it's said that about 14 of the ships do the kind of heavy lifting of the fight. However, that's also true of the Allied fleet. This guy, uh, Admiral Dumanoir, who was uh, in command of the lead squadron of the French, indecisively kind of dithered on the edge of the action. In order to engage, he would have had to have entirely changed direction, swung back into the fight, which he thought was already lost. Uh, Gravina, who was in charge of the, the reserve squadron, he's the, the, the top Spanish officer present, had essentially positioned himself on the wrong side of the action relative to the wind direction to do anything. And the British were, were by no means of one mind. They were just less divided in purpose than the flawed alliance of the French and, and the Spanish. Villeneuve surrenders his ship eventually to, uh, to the conqueror, whose captain, not realising he's receiving the surrender of such a high-ranking officer, sends a marine captain to take possession, which is a sort of final... You feel sorry for Villeneuve because it's, it's a slight, it's a kind of a really deadly insult to him that this really junior officer has been sent to receive his, his surrender. And there is a lot of convention, there's a lot of codified behaviour and mutual understanding between the British and the French and the Spanish officers that goes on around both the conduct of the fighting, but also the conduct of of surrender. Um, Here's a personal account of the surrender of, of one of the French ships. Quote, her captain stood up upon the poop, holding the lower corner of a small French jack while he pinned the upper with his sword to the stump of the mizzenmast. She fired two or three guns, probably to provoke a return, which might spare the discredit of a tame surrender. The conqueror's broadside was ready, but Captain Pellew exclaimed, don't hurt the brave fellow. Fire a single shot across his bow. Her captain immediately lowered his sword, thus dropping the colours and taking off his hat, bowed his surrender. End quote. Now, what's being described there is a sort of a, a mutual exchange there that um, the French ship couldn't surrender without having fired a shot, without having been seen to engage and without having been seen to be shot at. So despite the fact that it would probably cause you know, a, a lot of casualties and destruction, the French ship has to fire off two or three guns in order to, to signal to the British that she needs to be fired on in order to finally surrender. The centre of the French line is completely overwhelmed by this point. It's, it's kind of out. Gravina, who's with the reserve squadron, made some attempt to kind of come to the rescue. Uh, Dumanoir, after kind of studiously ignoring Villeneuve's signals, finally swings round into the action. But by this time, the, the battle's decided. And those kind of tentative token actions only lead to small skirmishes. The exception to this, uh, which gives us an insight into the driving motivation, but I, you know, I think we find, we find difficult to understand today, is this guy called Captain Infernet of the Entrepide. The Entrepide is, is with Dumanoir's squadron. When it finally comes round to, to, to help the centre of the line, and Infernet is, is disgusted, really, with Dumanoir's cowardice, as he views it, so rather than skirting the action with the rest of the squadron, he just takes the Entrepide on a kind of suicidal beeline towards the Boucantour. He's set on rescuing his admiral. And he must have known it was hopeless, you know, if a courageous gesture. Um, he's immediately set upon by four British ships. One of his lieutenants wrote, quote, he would not have it said that the Entrepide had quit the battle while she still could fire a gun or hoist a sail. It was a noble madness. But though we knew it, we all cheerfully supported him. And wish the others had done the same. End quote. You know, and that phrase wish the others had done the same is that struck me. I think that's key to understanding uh, really what's going on, because we've seen this death and honor attitude throughout the fight. infinite, for example, eventually had to be actually held down by his own men while the colors were struck. And objectively, surrendering was inevitable by that point, and he would have saved the lives of his own men and by saved the lives of, of many of the British sailors as well by doing that sooner. And that's difficult to stomach. But we've already discussed this quality in Nelson, of, uh, of, of kind of sticking it, putting it all on the plate, whether or not that's a sensible risk to make. And it seems kind of childish that these high-born, highly educated men are so willing to sacrifice the blood of others for their honor. However, th- there is a, a kind of highly practical dimension to it. As we discussed, the Articles of War for the British were, were really just pushing these attitudes on an institutional level. And actually, Nelson's whole plan was just a formalised version of what Infernet did with the Entropede, just with the whole British fleet. And he had set up the, the, the incentives that meant all of, all of well, or, or at least a good half of the British captains were willing to go and do that. So Infernet's officer is right. It, you know, if others, as he wishes, had done the same, it would not have been a suicidal gesture. It may well have, have swung the action. It could have, you know, several fresh allied ships arriving amongst the battle it could have done something. And the problem was that the Royal Navy had managed to codify this suicidal attitude as an institutional habit. And the idea of honour that pervades is at least a very romantic, convenient kind of prop to this actually very calculated equation. Dumanoir and Gravina were probably quite sensibly thinking about sailing away with what they could save. With the Allied ships surrendering one by one, Gravina, the Spanish admiral, who's who's now really in charge of, of the whole Allied fleet, orders the remaining French and the Spanish ships together onto his position and to try to make their way back to Cadiz. Nelson had given his first orders to move on the enemy at about 6am, and it was now about 5pm, and the sun was just beginning to set. So Nelson had been right about it taking all day. Now the very simple question that's often thrown around and that may be occurring to you right now is well, why did the British win? The kind of trite line that's often uh, trotted out is that British gunnery was better. Basically, the, the, the British sailor was better at, at working the guns. I actually recorded about a 10-minute segment um, detailing all of the different uh, regulations about practising guns and how often they did it, um, and then I realised it was incredibly boring. So I've I've decided to cut it out. Um, what I got from that, is to, to, to cut to the quick, is that there's not really much in it, or there doesn't appear to be. Collingwood definitely had this idea that the ship's company should be able to fire the guns three times in five minutes or whatever and, and drilled his men quite uh, harshly. But the amazing thing is neither of these navies had any standardised uh, training in gunnery, really, at all. Um, and therefore the standards from ship to ship were just massively different. And actually all of these sailors were first and foremost sailors, and the, the kind of gunnery element was definitely the second half of their job which makes perfect sense i would rather be in a ship filled with first rate sailors who are amateur gunners than than you know expert marksmen who didn't know how to sail but ultimately there doesn't seem to be much to this myth i think it's hung around for a couple of obvious reasons um firstly that it's kind of pop history it's a really neat reason to give for victory secondly it backs up an idea of british ascendancy of the reputation of the royal navy and the reputation of the jolly jack tar who's sort of automatically better than everyone else and I don't think it's true at all so why were they more successful? the first obvious stopping point is the Nelson touch as Nelson would have dubbed it that that you know that idea of just going straight at the enemy as became evident in the battle you know the French and the Spanish had quite a long time with the British lead ships particularly of each column totally exposed pounding away at them and didn't get a huge amount done I mean they, it wasn't I'm sure it wasn't a great place to be but those ships made it into the lines. And that meant that the British ships, when they entered the French line at that incredibly short range, at which point the, the Allied fleet had been firing for a really long time, getting knackered, basically, because it's a very physical process, the British were fresh and ready, all of their guns loaded, ready to kind of capitalise on that opportunity. Secondly, there's technology, which is one of those background elements that we sometimes don't think of. British powder was actually much better than French powder. Their guns had flint locks, which are essentially a firing mechanism, rather than the French who used these kind of slow matches, um, and the British had this gun design called a Blomefield gun that would explode less often. Actually, if you, you heard from Lucas's testimony that he recounted two of his guns having exploded, that's because they became so hot that the the actual structure would weaken and they would, you know, burst and, as you can imagine, wreak terrible havoc on on everyone around them. To me, I think the most convincing reason why they won is is doctrine. It's basically the kind of rules that govern their their navies. Rather than the British being good at gunnery, it it might be more accurately said that the French and the Spanish were quite bad at it and made the British look quite good in comparison. The French and the Spanish, as as I said, had been firing up into the British rigging. That was their kind of theoretical approach to the idea was that you would dismast and disable the British ships. And this is typical military theory stuff. And of course we have twenty twenty hindsight. You can imagine somebody, you know, putting it forward as a motion at the French Navy AGM, that we're going to just shoot their masts and we're going to stop them from moving and then we'll have won the battle easy. It, to some extent, it's no more silly than Nelson's idea of sailing straight at the enemy. As I said, you know battles represent these kind of rubber meets the road moments in, in history. And you get to find out whether these bits of theory actually work in practice. The British doctrine was just to fire directly into the hull, as I said, to, to sink or kill the crew. That might actually account really for the idea of British accuracy. Um, firing at the rigging is, in the words of a, a French military journal of the time, three-fourths void. Basically, there's a lot of air up there. There's a lot of nothing which the cannonball is just going to pass through. The hull is a massive bit of wood. It's much easier to hit, you know, shooting at the broadside of a barn, essentially. And British doctrine, I think, was just brutally more effective. These, these kind of differing approaches to the fight also are kind of exemplified in their attitude to the dead. Um, the French and the Spanish... And I'm not sure exactly why this is, though my suspicion is it's something to do with the fact that France and Spain are historically Catholic. Piled corpses in between the guns for later burial, which you can imagine really got in the way. You know, these guns are all jumping around and people are trying to do things in the thick of battle. And there's a growing pile of corpses in the middle. Also, absolutely horrible for morale. As I'm going to get on to morale, but, but this is fighting essentially with... A record of how badly you're doing, you know, in between the guns. One of the British officers actually remarks in his testimony that we heard earlier that the blessing of the smoke is that you can't see all of your mates dying. And having this huge pile of corpses is kind of just seems like the worst possible thing for wanting to keep going. The British, on the other hand, just dumped everyone on either side. They just, as soon as you're dead, you just got dumped out of the porthole. So the British ships are are really machines. I think, you know, to, to, to my mind, the idea of shooting, you know, to, to my mind, the idea of aiming for just the hull of the ship to put a hole in it and kill as many people as possible and sink the ship as quickly as possible, that's what a computer would come up with. That's like your AI algorithm would say that is the most efficient way to solve the problem of how to win this battle, as is the idea of just dumping your, your people overboard. Um, and then finally, and I, probably I think most pertinently morale, as I said, the British were used to winning gunnery actions, gunnery duels, probably for a combination of the above reasons that I've already given. And basically, they would just go on loading and firing their guns for longer, because that's really the test. The battle doesn't end when everyone's dead. It's when one side gives up. So as the remains of the Allied fleet uh, are leaving the scene, the British are really in no shape at all to chase them. They're left kind of triumphant over a Mess of smashed, mangled ships floating on masts, wounded men amidst these drifting clouds of cannon smoke. I'd encourage you actually to take a look at some of the paintings of, of, of this battle. Most famously, you have ones like Turner's The Battle of Trafalgar, which have debris and smoke and the victory standing proudly in the centre of the painting. But I'd argue actually that uh, The Close of Action, which is a painting by, by a guy called William Huggins, gives a more accurate impression of what you should imagine. The ships float just sort of at random, seemingly at random. British and French are completely indistinguishable. They've had their masts shot away. They are just, as I said, these boxes riddled with holes, like these huge kind of slowly sinking rafts for hundreds of men aboard. Paul Nicholas, aboard the Belial, gives an account of the British dead. He says, quote, These gallant fellows were lying beside each other in the gunroom, preparatory to their being committed to the deep. And here many met to take a last look at their departed friends, whose remains soon followed the promiscuous multitude, without distinction of either rank or nation, to their wide ocean grave. He goes on to describe the state of the ship. Quote The upper deck presented a confused and dreadful appearance. Masts, yards, sails, ropes, and fragments of wreck were scattered in every direction. Nothing could be more horrible than the scene of blood and mangled remains, with which every part was covered and which, from the quantity of splinters, resembled a shipwright's yard strewed with gore. End quote. The Achille, a French ship, drifted amongst the wreckage. A fire was kind of blazing on her deck. The British tried to assist her, either to aid the French sailors still on board, or to secure another prize, it's hard to say, but they were constantly terrified that its magazine would explode, so they all had to keep their distance. Furthermore, her already loaded guns were going off at random as the, the fire reached the gun decks. The sailors on board were trapped between their terror of the fire and those able to swim, you know, their terror of the water. Jean Conant was among these sailors. Jean's real name was Jeanette and uh, was one of the totally unknowable number of women who fought in the battle. She had joined the ship's crew when her husband did and she had assumed the guise of a man working through the the battle in, in the powder room because essentially she, she didn't want to, to leave her husband to go through it alone. And Jeanette realised at this point that the Achilles' ladder had been shot away, so she was stuck below deck. She made her way to the stern of the ship, and she climbed out of a gunport, down onto the ship's rudder. Here she stripped naked, and she dived into the water. Shortly afterwards, the Achilles' exploded. Quote, It was a sight, the most awful and grand that can be conceived In a moment, the hull burst into a cloud of smoke and fire. A column of vivid flame shot up to enormous height in the atmosphere and terminated by expanding into an immense globe, representing for a few seconds a prodigious tree in flames, speckled with many dark spots, which the pieces of timber and bodies of men occasioned while they were suspended in the clouds. End quote. Jeanette, after floating about for a couple of hours on a plank, was picked up by some British sailors and became the subject of a very unlikely-looking oil painting. Many of the ship's logs, uh, written up for the day as the sun went down, were a kind of confused, dazed accounts of the action, scrawled hurriedly in different hands. The captains that usually wrote them, having fallen in the battle, largely or, or you know in in, re- in relatively large quantity. To quote Lord Wellington after Waterloo: "Nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won." Now Nelson had been lying uh, in the cockpit of the victory whilst really all of this was happening, slowly dying. Dr Beattie's account continues, quote, Captain Hardy now came to the cockpit. Before he quitted the deck, he sent Lieutenant Hill to acquaint Admiral Collingwood with the lamentable circumstance. Lord Nelson and Captain Hardy shook hands again, and while the captain retained his lordship's hands, he congratulated him, even in the arms of death, on his brilliant victory. He was certain of 14 or 15 having surrendered. His lordship answered, that is well, but I bargained for 20, Now, Nelson, on his way down to the sick bay, um, had actually also noticed the falling barometers and the, the wispy clouds, which to an experienced naval officer would be a very big red flag. Quote, then he emphatically exclaimed, Anchor, Hardy, anchor. To this, the captain replied, I suppose my Lord Admiral Collingwood will now take upon himself the direction of affairs. Not while I live, I hope, Hardy, cried the dying chief and at that endeavoured ineffectually to raise himself. Do you anchor, Hardy? Captain Hardy then said, Shall we make the signal, sir? Yes, answered his lordship, for if I live I'll anchor. The energetic manner in which he uttered these, his last orders to Hardy, evinced his determination never to resign command while he retained the exercise of his transcendent faculties, a sense of his duty overcoming the pains of death. End quote. Now all of that talk of, of anchoring is a slight foreshadowing of what we're going to kick off the next episode with. Nelson had sensed bad weather on the horizon and knew that the wrecked remnants of, of both fleets, both the captured ships and his own uh, fleet, uh, were not in any condition to weather a storm. He told Hardy, I shall be dead in a few minutes. He gave instructions for his estate to go to Emma Hamilton and to Horatia, his daughter, and requested, don't throw me overboard. With his parting words to Hardy, he said simply, take care of poor Lady Hamilton, kiss me Hardy. He's then said to have repeated, now I am satisfied, thank God I have done my duty. He repeated this until his death at 4.30pm as the final shots of the battle were being fired. But as the sun set, the winds were beginning to pick up and Nelson would have a very long journey back to London. Thank you very much for listening to this first series of pedestals this podcast is totally independent i make it in my free time so if you'd like to support then please head over to my patreon account patreon.com forward slash pedestals covering expenses of books and coffee and so forth would be a brilliant start but the more support i get from you guys the more time i can justify reading books and blathering into my microphone and making episodes If you've got any questions at all or you want to point out any glaring errors and I I will try to make corrections um, or if you just want to get in touch, you can reach me on pedestalspodcast at gmail.com. Links to all of this uh, are going to be in the episode description. This podcast is written, presented and edited by me, Peter Dewhurst. A massive thank you goes out to uh, Fiona Wilson and to Brendan O'Rourke for their work on the logo, cover, illustration, whatever it's called. Uh, Thanks also to all of the proper historians whose work I have cannibalised and scavenged from. A full list of sources is in the episode description. See you next time.